Welcome to Hooplecast. I am your host, Matt, and joining me are my newbie co-hosts. Carol. Matt. Mel. And we're a bunch of Hoopleheads. Today, we have a guest with us. Please welcome to the podcast, her first appearance, Stephanie. Yay! Yay. Hey, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. Not to be confused with the previous Stephanie. This is a new Stephanie. (laughs) They they sound nothing alike, so it shouldn't be hard. (laughs) (laughs) True. I'll try. I can do an impersonation, maybe. <laughs> Stephanie, what what are your memories of Deadwood? Tell us your history with the show. Are you a veteran viewer or a new viewer? I am a new viewer. My approach to Deadwood is maybe a little odd. Uh, I got into Deadwood a few months after I started working on a novel called Right Below Snakes that takes place in 1876, 1877. It's a Western and after a few months, uh, my partner Jeff is a big time Deadwood guy and said, Hey, this hap- this show happens at the same time. So I started watching it. So Deadwood was actually part of, is part of my ongoing research process for this novel. When, cool. when was that? I'm sorry? When was that? Uh, that was in the spring. Okay. Nice. Okay. So, so yeah. So, new. But you've seen the entire thing? At this I've point? seen the entire thing. Twice. Wow. Very good. Cool. Because you did say this was one of your favorite episodes. Yes, this is one of my top two episodes. The second one is next season, so I'm not going to say anything about it. Cool. Uh Okay. Mm. I can't. Well, I hope you get on uh, as a guest for that one. I'm going to try. And I'm really looking forward to hearing why you why you like this one. Indeed, it's fantastic. Are you going to tell her she's wrong? No. <laughs> I, have, I have zero problems with this episode. I would, not, I would not put it in my top five, but I would say... Uh, oh, he's saying you're wrong. I'm hey, not. Okay. No, an opinion. You know, it's her opinion. I'm coming at it from a different place than you guys. So and it's I'm like... looking forward to hearing why. Shall we start with that or shall we start with something else? No, we'll, we'll work our way through it, but... Okay. Do you have a favorite character of the show, uh, keeping in mind we're only halfway through the series? Um, favorite character in the show? Yeah, favorite character on the show. Not um, necessarily this episode, but in total. In total, it's uh, a, probably a tie uh, between Al Swearingen and Alma, Russell, Ooh. Garrett. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those, I think they're my favorite characters. Um, they fight against each other. In terms of favorite for me, because they are not unlike. They're actually pretty similar in their sort of personalities and the over what kinds of injustices set them off and the way uh, they have a real uh, rebellious spirit. And they're also charming motherfuckers, those two people. <laughs> they're so charming when they like want to be, it's they just dissolve you with their charm as we saw in this particular episode we saw quite a bit of charm al was bringing it this episode in terms of charm and uh and alma gave him a run for his money in which they had their very first meeting together which is probably why this is one of my favorite episodes is because those two those two people meet and i have so much content about that about their meeting i've I'm looking at like three pages of notes and I've, <laughs> well, yeah, I've got so much about that. I could go on. You tell me where and when you want me to talk about it. You'll fit in, right? You'll fit in very well. Yeah, we're, we're, we are a chatty bunch. And uh, <laughs> I, I will say that 
Elma might be my favorite character of the show. I kind of – I flip-flop between favorite characters, but I'm not sure anyone has the kind of arc that she does. Where she starts in the series and where she ends up is pretty remarkable. It's a great path for that is character. She the, is she the Wesley Wyndham Price of this show? You mean Well, <laughs> in terms of great character arcs? Yeah, in terms of where they started and where they ended up. Oh, maybe. Yeah, because I feel he's the, the best character in the Buffyverse. <laughs> I think you might be right, yeah. Oh. Some would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch Angel or just Buffy? <laughs> I've, I've watched both of them many, many times. All right. Yeah, next next week I get to uh, be on Emily and Sue's Sue Watches Buffy talking okay. about uh, Angel episodes, uh, my favorite one of my favorite Angel episodes, Spin the Bottle. Looking forward to talking yep. about that. So, uh, yep. all right. Well, we have a Reader's Theater article read by, this is quite the coincidence, read by Sue. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's not related to this episode at all. I I couldn't find anything that was really episode appropriate. So it starts with a little uh, general news tidbit about a famous artist of the time and then goes into a kind of bizarre but interesting letter written by a woman who I think goes to either she's going to Deadwood or she's leaving Deadwood. I'm not entirely sure, but it was published in the, uh, in the Black Hills daily times. So you you couldn't find any articles about beatings in the street. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm sure there are plenty, but I couldn't, they're not necessarily have my readers theater group recorded them and sent them back to me. So that's a bit of a, that always puts me in a bit of a bind. I have to pick what I have on hand. Should I take out my uh, suitcase of weapons for you? <laughs> Just sharpen them all, sharpen my knives? Yeah. All right, I can well, do that. It's no well, we problem. All, well, we know where Claire lives. It's no problem at all, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going we're gonna to be talking to her tomorrow. You should stab her through Skype. <laughs> <laughs> A gentle reminder would not, be, would not hurt. It'll be very yeah. gentle. Just a poke. <laughs> Just a poke. All right, here we go. The following news items appeared in the Black Hills Daily Times, July 14th, 1877, and July 27th, 1877. Our famous painter, Mr. Edward Moran, has sailed with his wife for Europe on the Britannia to be gone for two years, taking with him his great picture of liberty lighting the world, which attracted so much attention and won such high praise from distinguished French authorities when privately exhibited last year. The picture will be placed immediately on exhibition in London and removed to Paris in time for the first reception given to General Grant on his arrival in that city. Mrs. Moran is an artist whose talent would stand better chance recognition had she not a greater artist for her husband. A picture of hers was the Gem of the Ladies art exhibition of last autumn in the city, and her watercolor show a singular mixture of delicacy and boldness in treatment. Both Mr. and Mrs. Moran will be missed greatly from the literary and art circles of the city, their houses having been one of the most hospitable centers distinguished alike for refinement and informality, for the care and elegance with which its honors were dispensed. Everyone will wish them bon voyage and safe return. Today I speak through the distance, attempting to break the silence which has fallen like a curtain, smothering the intonations of the voice and bewildering the intellect. I sing, O Lord, dispel the darkness, and pray for the spirit of truth to dwell deeply in the heart. He that hath ears to hear, if the one to whom I address myself reads the words I write, 
let him forgive freely and finally haste and unkindness of my fond mother and father. They are ready to view calmly the events of the past and the angels of the other world will bless you with their smiles. I have returned to the friends of my childhood in hopes of forgetting the music of torment which rings from the halls of insanity. I was absent from April of one year till June of the next. On my return, I received your letters and picture with utmost satisfaction. But Daisy Wells' sweet music opened my understanding to the sorrowful reality of your absence, and Susie's children wept with me coaxing Auntie not to cry, while Father brought out Harry and Lady Nimble wearing their saddles to convey us through the shadowy woodlands, and Nellie fastened my hat, telling me how much handsomer I was with a white face. Then everyone smiled, and Treasure Bay struck the road with her shining hoofs, and Father declared that she carried herself more gracefully than she had done since my departure. It was June when I wrote a brief reply to your precious letter, sending it to Custer City and having it returned to me from Washington the following December. I was in school at the time, and faces danced before me in mad confusion, after which I could not rest and was compelled to come away from the scenes of my trouble. I've kept you ever in my heart, distinctly, tenderly. May our Father in Heaven lead you in the quiet way, guarding you from evil through the love of Him, whose name is too sacred to mention. Hmm. You who shall not be named. Lovely. Does anybody understand that last one? It's very nope. beautiful, but... Mm, yeah. What the hell is she saying? Really <laughs> oh, the letters? Really yeah. Well, I think that it's... Uh, there were a lot of letters uh, sent out that were sent back months later and were essentially the only notification you would get that your loved one had died. Um, it You know, if someone didn't know Joe Blow Minor had a wife, had a sister, had anybody, then who were they going to notify? There was no system of, you know, so-and-so is dead. It's just eventually no one picks up the letter, and that's that. Hmm. So it's this, like, like untenable distance, this inaccessibility, this lack of information and knowledge, and uh, that was ever-present in the United States culturally ever since the civil war, because people were scattered to the wind and you just didn't know, you didn't know that someone had died of typhus two days after they enlisted. And that kind of grief was really pervasive in the 19th century. Um, okay. So you're thinking they didn't, they found a letter or, or let's say um, someone gave the letter to Charlie and he gave it to Jane and she got drunk and the letter didn't get delivered. So they published it in the paper. Um, that, or I think this might just have been an open editorial. A lot of, uh, women, uh, in particular would kind of pen these things, uh, to like kind of a eulogy. Okay. So maybe so. there isn't, maybe this person didn't exist, but it's more of a, an exercise and uh, of emotion of how this person felt. It could very well have been a true person and that this, uh, woman, was essentially just sending a eulogy out there, um, you know, just for the community, sent it into the void as opposed to, you know, pursuing a medium, which a lot of people did at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. The uh, first part of the, of this reader's theater was very surprising. I did not imagine an art community in Deadwood. No. <laughs> well, and this is, this is odd because it says our, well, our Edward Moran, our famous painter. Well, okay. Our, if you you know if he's an American or or whatnot, you might say that he belongs to us, even if it's even oh. if he didn't live there. But then yeah. they go on to say about this city, the artistic community in this city, uh, yeah. hospi- hosp- hospitality in this city. 
uh, unless it was reprinted from, uh, say, a New York paper, because I looked up this painter, Edward Moran, and he pretty much lived in New York City until his death in 1901. He was a he was born in England in 1829. Then he moved with his family to Maryland when he was 15. At eight, in 1885, at the height of his career, he began what would be considered his most important work, a series of 13 paintings representing the marine history of the United States. Not long after their completion, the series was displayed at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. He lived in New York City until his death in 1901, though he briefly, briefly resided in Europe from 1877 to 1879. So this... Article is just as he was about to go to Europe for those two years. Mm. In 1876, he met the French sculptor Frederic Auguste Bartoli. Well, this bloke, this sculptor, he told Moran of his plan to create a monumental statue in the New York Harbor titled Liberty Enlightening the World, more commonly known as the Statue of Liberty. Inspired by his idea, Moran painted the Commerce of Nations Paying Homage to Liberty in 1876, which was then displayed at fundraising events for the building of the statue. So that is the uh, painting he's taking with him to Europe in uh, when this was published in 1877. And you can see a copy of the painting in our Facebook group. Or if you're not in the Facebook group, first of all, shame on you. But you can... <laughs> also, also, Mel will kill you. Also, Mel will kill you. You can also find it in uh, our show notes. And you do that by going to the website, hoopalcast.com, go to the archived episodes page. Every episode is on there with a, a link that says resources. You click on that, and that's the show notes for that episode. And I've got every Reader's Theater article at the end of each one of those with a link to the audio file, a clean audio file. So, guys, check that out. If you didn't know that already, that's what's there. Any other thoughts on those articles? No. Hmm? I like um, uh, Moran. He's awesome. It did seem like the um, it did seem like Moran's uh, article was talking about his trip from New York, just reprinted. Yeah, it yeah. might have been their way to give people a picture of what was happening in the rest of the hmm. country. Yeah, a lot of newspapers, a lot of these, uh, even like larger newspapers all over the, um, territories in the West would reprint <clears throat> articles a lot. Um, which uh, which is cool and interesting and sometimes horrible. As I like was digging through newspapers in my research process, it was not uncommon for them to uh, reprint um, articles and speeches in favor of scientific racism. So that's pretty disturbing. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was not that was not uncommon to reprint uh, articles from all over the country. One of my favorite ones that we played, one of the earliest ones, is the Candy Store one by Claire, and that came from the Detroit Free Press. Mm. Good times. Moran. Mm-hmm. He hung out with the uh, the Impressionists, I think, when he was in France and started doing the, like, uh, open air, the open air stuff, and then came back and did all his maritime work. So is he a pretty famous American painter? I think so, like because yeah, of those those thirteen canvases. Yeah, he's um, very he's he's got very patriotic paintings. Yeah. So I figure he's pretty famous then. In certain well, circles, I suppose. It's mm, uh, yes, yes. It's uh it's not a super trendy genre of art right now. <laughs> no. No. Well, it says just on the Wikipedia article that at the time of his death, he was considered to be one of the most important 19th century marine painters. But today, he's not well known, eclipsed by the work of his younger brother, Thomas. Yep. <laughs> Damn you, Thomas. Damn you, Thomas. <laughs> Damn you, Philip J. Fry. <laughs> you super. 
Well, this is episode 19, E.B. Was Left Out, written by Jody Wirth, directed by Michael Almereda. Original air date, April 17th, 2005. I just took a guess at how to pronounce that surname. <laughs> it's going to be like a guessing of names this whole episode. <laughs> so, when I have time, sometimes I do go online and I try to find pronunciations. But, so I don't sound like a, a jackass. But Too late. Too late. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it is just before dawn. Al asks Merrick if he knew that a walkway connected their respective places. That's a ridiculous statement. I it's... feel like they just inserted that in the show to make it convenient. Yeah. <laughs> and that's there's probably no why Al doesn't time. know that there's a walkway. Al knows everything, first of all, but it's his building. Of course, he knows what connects. Yeah, that could be like maybe it's a nod to the audience. Like, yeah, we never showed this before. So let's have Al say this. Hey, did you know there's a walkway here? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this kind of is uh, reiterated uh, later on when Al goes to visit Charlie Utter. You know, when he like, you know, oh, she forgot to inscribe the address. And he's kind of bullshitting a little bit. And when Cy visits um, and he's like, Utter just beat this asshole up. You know, Al is like, well, how do you think we should proceed? So I feel like that a lot of this episode is him very like cheekily m- like misrepresenting his yeah. own ignorance i suppose i don't know what's going on i don't know that there's a walkway uh, cheerful and stupid <laughs> yeah yes. he's tapping into his cheeky british nature <laughs> merrick shares his account of his office being vandalized al gives him a pep talk which amounts to if the world knocks you down get up and knock back I love uh, Al being a life coach in this episode. <laughs> he I know. Was. Totally life coach. <laughs> oh, it's pretty damn great. It, it makes you think that oh, Al's such when a nice Merrick... guy. Yeah. So for all the people he's killed. <laughs> when Merrick started talking about how how traumatized he is and all of that, the look on Al's face, I was just like, yeah, this is not something that he cares one whit about. He is not going to be sympathetic. To psychic injury. <laughs> I think he is sensitive to it, though, actually. I, I think if he weren't sensitive to it, he wouldn't have bothered pep talk. I don't think he would have uh, bothered to offer any comfort or any kind of wisdom. It kind of harkens back to uh, when one of the, the prostitutes was afraid she had smallpox. And he's like, well, you know, like, you know, you're probably immune because your peeps died. Like, they're like, I think that he is sympathetic to the emotions of people when their despair threatens his position. Well, it's morning. Charlie rides back into town. Joni enters the Bella Union to repay Jack, plus a hundred. As she enters Cy's office, Lee tips his hat like one human being to another. Joni asks after the three dead horse. She wants to bury the remains, but there are none. Where'd she get the money if she just had to borrow money? I don't think... She- no, the, she had the money in the Shazami. She just couldn't get to it at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, and those guys, those two cronies are extra racist. <laughs> like, a guy can't do anything without a comment. They're yeah, they're very, they're very Shakespearean clowns. Mm-hmm. When you think of the Tempest. Mm-hmm. Just kind of wandering around saying horrible things that are so horrible they're funny. Mm-hmm. E.B. was very Shakespearean in this episode, too. He was, like, narrating things. Mm-hmm. But he always is. Yeah, yeah he always yeah. is. Very um, theatrical. 
Mm-hmm. I, and I've seen some, uh, I don't know if you could call them criticisms, but maybe observations of the series and that EB kind of goes down this path of becoming more and more theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably as his paranoia increases, maybe. Because <laughs> yeah. it seems to be increasing with each episode. Yeah. The fact that he's not included makes him more... His world turns more and more into a stage play. Yes. <laughs> He's he progressively more more gets insane. more and more insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a theme, though, because uh, Sai is doing the same thing. I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's very much uh, progressively losing his shit, and as a result, uh, pontificates and ends up saying too much. Yes. I also think that David Milch wants to constantly challenge his actors to do more and more of this kind of dialogue mm-hmm. and he particularly uh, sort of revels in giving William Sanderson <laughs> very difficult, <laughs> difficult things to say. <laughs> Likes giving him a hard time. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Cause you know, you hear these stories about Bill Sanderson and, and you hear his commentary track, w- which he did one for this episode. He's yeah. very self-deprecating. He's very much like, oh. I can't believe I get work, and when I'm on a, a on a gig, I'm I just like he feels like every day that there's a chance someone's going to say you're fired. What are you doing here? Like he he has a lot of like self esteem issues. You sir so, are a fraud. Yeah. So David Milch just keeps giving him more and more like last minute <laughs> last minute dialogue, which is kind of funny. I did hear uh, one of the commentaries. Uh, I can't remember which episode it was. Might have been the first episode of season two, when Timothy Oliphant and Nia McShane do the commentary and Oliphant, he uh, makes mention of an anecdote in which uh, Bill Sanderson was talking to the director and the director told him to do something. And Bill Sanderson replies, I could do that if I was a bad actor. Yeah. (laughs) So I think there's a, there's there's still a sense of uh, ethics to his, his work. It's like, even if he is very self-deprecating, he's still committed to doing a fantastic job. Mm. You Bill Sanderson. The, um, the Bill Sanderson, Kim Dickens, um, Dayton Cowley commentary was pretty funny. Particularly how often uh, Dayton Cowley, he plays Charlie. How often he's like, where's Oliphant? Where's, where's, <laughs> where, where the hell's Tim? <laughs> Isn't he on this show? <laughs> it was great the little the the ribbing i just want to hang out with those guys they seem like so a blast cute. did they ever go so to cute. conventions i i mean no, i know jim beaver goes to conventions but it's always for supernatural stuff yeah but he's uh, in a uh, crimson peak jim beaver yeah he's, i heard that he's great he's fantastic does he have a sizable part uh yeah, I mean yeah, it's a, a very important part he plays. He plays uh uh up by her bootstraps, uh, Horatio Alger uh, mogul. So he's our protagonist's father. He oh, does a really outstanding cool. job. Yeah, he, he's very very good. Yeah, when he was here at Phoenix for the Comic Con, I was very tempted to go and then be like the guy who oh fuck Supernatural. Let's talk about Deadwood, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Or John from Cincinnati. That's another great one that he's in. Good stuff. Yeah, I'm debating if we're going to watch that pilot as a bonus episode. We might do that. The that show, the show that killed Deadwood, in quotes. <laughs> the show that killed itself. Well, I guess that was the executives. Fucking executives. Mm. 
suits. It's it's hard to hate HBO executives. They take risks on shows that other networks wouldn't do, but then they cancel them when we get when we fall in love with them. Yeah, Home carnival. Womp womp. As he shaves, Wolcott contemplates slitting his own throat. No, he doesn't. Or do you think he was just thinking about how it might have felt to be one of those women? Like I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I assumed as well. Hmm. Though I do think that he suffers from some severe self-loathing, as I've already mentioned, but I really don't have anything new to say about Walcott. At this point, I think he's just sort of like uh, a a driving force in other characters' plots, like Joni in particular. Yeah. Fuck that guy. This is the first episode I actually enjoyed him. Just probably because he yeah. got his ass beat. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> no I agree. <laughs> well, Garrett Dillahunt does say on his commentary track, because this episode had two commentary tracks, which meant that I watched this episode uh, four times. <laughs> <laughs> Garrett Dillahunt says that he thinks that one reason why Wilcott doesn't fight back in the street is, is because he, he kind of wants to die. Like he kind yeah. of sees that he's a monster but he's too much of a coward to kill himself to slit his own throat. Mm. So if somebody were to do it for him, he wouldn't fight back. I disagree with Garrett Dillahunt, but uh, that's all right. Well, remember when um, Commissioner Jari walked down the stairs and he said, and you, Mr. Wilcott, I find you the most severe disappointment of all. And, And he says, often to myself, as well, or something to that effect. Like I, I'm also disappointed in myself. I feel like oh, yeah. there's a lot of self-loathing there. I, yeah. I agree. I think the reason that he didn't fight back in that fight was because he completely misread Charlie and was totally unprepared for the assault. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Charlie said something, uh, what did he say? He said, and I doubt you fought many men, maybe even one. And he takes him by the back of the neck, like a fucking dog and throws yes. him in the dirt. And like the look on his face um was like so like inactive mm. and and but he still kept trying to get up so the fact that he kept trying to get up suggested to me that it, he just was completely ill prepared and full of shit and that charlie is a great judge of first impressions mm. but I you see- know i wasn't the actor that played wilcott so I could be yeah. totally wrong we'll get to the uh the big uh throwdown in a right. couple segments. But first of all, Al tells EB to pass along a message to the widow Garrett if he want that he wants to pay a call on her. Stop walking with me, EB. <laughs> <laughs> when EB asks if he might know what this is regarding, should Alma ask, Al refuses to say. Oh, EB's left out. Oh. Part one. <laughs> <laughs> the first instance of EB being excluded. I want to say something about titles in this series. Okay. It's like they take the smallest thing in the series and make it the title. You mean in the episode? In the episode, I'm sorry. Yes. It really is. I'm going through this and it's like, how many times have we had these things where it's like just a tiny piece? Yeah. There's some great titles later, I will tell you. Yeah. Okay. All pulled, right. Pulled from sort of uh, the same way, small scenes, small bits of dialogue. I also think I, that that the fact that EB was left out is a huge plot point because there are so many things that happen in this episode that EB is not trustworthy to be involved with. EB isn't trustworthy to be involved with anything anytime, so. and yet he is. <laughs> mm. He is because Al uses him for stuff. 
Indeed. And, but not this time. Right. Because, you know, my mom had an old saying. What was it? It was, uh, tell the, tell the press, tell them. It was all about telling different people and it always ended with whoever was the biggest gossip around. So it's like you tell the newspaper, you tell the whoever, and you tell so-and-so. And it's kind of what you usually be for. Mm-hmm. As Walcott did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't trust EB with breakfast. I wouldn't, <laughs> oh, eat, I wouldn't eat at his absurd <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> no. Absurd. <laughs> we were counting characters who spoke while wearing hats, and so far we've had four. Joni, yeah. Jack, Constapleton, and EB. A lot. So far up to four. All right. I think Al's the only one who doesn't wear a hat regularly. Alma doesn't usually wear a hat. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Seth hasn't been wearing a hat lately, and Saul never wore a hat. Seth Saul, Saul yeah. wore a hat this episode, but he didn't say anything while he was wearing it. <laughs> he did? I don't remember that. It was, it was at the big meeting. Not that I was paying any attention to hats, honestly. but Seth no, it, never wears a hat indoors, just outdoors. Well, that's how you're supposed to do it, which is interesting because both Al and Alma don't wear a lot of hats because they don't go outside very much. People come to them. <laughs> or they go out at night. <laughs> Indeed. Well, women women can wear hats indoors, and but men are not supposed to. Joni pays Charlie a call. She's never met a woman who wasn't afraid of a man until Maddie. Now Maddie is dead, killed by Wolcott, who works for Hearst. But it's a secret, Charlie. I told you as a friend. She cries. Charlie hugs her. I love this scene. That's sad. Amazing. Mm. I'm kind of kind of glad we're we're rid of Maddie at just this exact moment because I just started watching Fear the Walking Dead, where Joni is named Maddie. <laughs> oh, that's that's confusing. <laughs> I've heard that's terrible, by the way. <laughs> although although the scene was the scene was great, and I especially liked the way the actors handled the hug at the end. Um, yeah, yeah it was nice. I, I literally made a note. What did the writers want to make things clear for the audience? Is that why Joni just explained the entire plot of what had been going on? <laughs> oh, they, do, they do that a lot, though. In this episode especially, there was a lot of recap in this episode. I started wondering if there had been a big break in time between the episodes when the episodes aired. If I could offer a theory on that, I think one of the reasons that she engaged in that confidence and that a lot of people uh, have do that in this dynamic is it's a method of forming a coalition. So it's like it's a it's like you confide in your friend, whereas like previously, Joni had passed right by Charlie as he commented, of like, don't pass me by or something like that. So I think she she was uh, he didn't know. And so I think a big part of it was uh, them cementing their friendship and her uh, showing her deep trust in Charlie by sharing this with him. Although True. now will she feel her trust was betrayed now that he kind of went and beat him up? Yeah. yeah. I'm sure the words out that she well, told Well, I mean, <laughs> if, if, if I told someone that someone did something to me and then, you know, you'd feel maybe mad that they took matters into their own hand, but you know that they did it out of concern for you, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. So, And it's all under the pretense that Char- that Wolcott stepped on Charlie's foot. 
Yeah. <laughs> but nobody so, believes that anymore. Well, the people who believe it are the people who would have sussed out the truth anyway. Al, Seth, Sai. Mm. So maybe Joni, the, maybe the corns were, uh, you know, affected his decision. <laughs> He's like, okay, Johnny, Johnny, you're our, you're the Johnny of this podcast, man. <laughs> Sick burn, um, sick burn, you know, bro. I know. You never know. You haven't seen Charlie Utter's feet, so you don't That's know. That's true. <laughs> They're wet. I, have, I, have a, I have a feeling I don't want to see his feet. <laughs> He's probably got really good wheels. Wait until the beach party episode of De- Deadwood. Yes! You'll see everyone's feet. There's <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of ingenuous sort of nature about what Joni was doing, though. I mean, I agree about the coalition thing. I definitely think she was she was making an ally who, I mean, she was coming on to the guy at the bar who had helped her. She talked to Charlie. She, and the whole thing about, you know, not understanding men at all and all is just, that doesn't make sense with her. I mean, I understand that she's been through a traumatic thing and it makes her feel that way. But at the same time, the idea that Charlie might not go and beat this guy up or maybe even kill this guy, um, that's a pretty common thing in that day and age. And it still would be, you know, telling, telling a guy who is obviously a good, staunch kind of man not like the one she normally deals with that someone has hurt you this badly and hurt other people that you care about this badly um and expecting there to be no reaction i'm wondering if Joni had a pretty good idea what might happen and would have been more than happy if he had been killed Mm mm-hmm do you think there's a chance that Joni doesn't consider Charlie a man in the sense of, uh, I'm afraid of men? Like, she's literally telling him, I'm afraid of men. He's a teddy bear. Yeah, so I'm wondering if, like, she doesn't, like, his, like, their friendship is transcending gender in a way? Mm. I think so, yeah. Because, you know, there's there's always, some people will see certain guys as, you know, not... Sexual, I Do guess. Do you think it's maybe... So maybe that's, that, that is what, you know... Mm. He's what... never tried, he's never yeah. tried anything with her. Yeah, ever. Exactly. His relationship did... with her is like his relationship with Jane, almost. I think he did mention, like, he didn't have any illusions, but he was interested or something. Yeah. One time, maybe. But he's always been respectful to her. No, yeah. I think you're thinking of Ellsworth and Alma. He was saying, oh. Ellsworth was saying, oh, I'm too old for her. I know I'm too old for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There so, is an exchange between uh, Joni and Charlie. I hope this is no one's quote. I doubt that it is. Where she says, "It was a man named Wilcott killed him that works for George Hurst." And Charlie says, "Why?" And she goes, "I don't know that. I'm not a man. Like yeah. I don't understand this indiscriminate violence. I'm yeah. not a man." Do you think maybe their relationships more either brother brotherly or fatherly or? I think brotherly. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. That that quote that you just did sounded really genuine to me, mm-hmm. and I I felt like in that respect she was being absolutely genuine. Mm-hmm. It was but, great, great delivery. 
on that. Oh one. yeah. Yeah, you oh, could yeah. feel her desperation to understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, I think she does understand certain things that will cause trouble. She's a really smart woman who's been dealing with violent men for a very long time. And and whether a man is violent or not, there are many things that if you've been around people who are volatile, you know what's going to set people off. And Joni seems really smart about that kind of stuff. So I keep going back to, even though I think she cares about Charlie and all, I'm not sure that she wasn't using him as as well. Possibly Mm. on a, on a subconscious level. Yeah. It could be subconscious. Yeah. Deadwood does do this thing where there'll be a scene and you're not quite sure what it means or what the dialogue refers to. And then there'll be a follow-up scene where they explain it to the audience. Mm-hmm. It's some a kind of a pattern to watch out for. It's happened before. So mm-hmm. this is yeah. this is the kind of recap where in case you didn't understand what happened last time, yeah, here's a it, little that, friendly recap for you. It did come across that way um, and for me. Uh, not still... that I didn't enjoy the scene. Oh, the but... scene was great. Yeah, the scene was great, but it did, you know, it did make me say, "Okay, so this is this is a recap to make sure that everyone understands what just happened." I, I don't, I don't see it as a as a recap. I I think it's purposeful because so many of these characters cannot speak frankly, and that's yeah. like a big, uh, you know, they're manipulating each other constantly. But at the same time, there are these moments of sincerity. And moments of intimacy. And I think that is, uh, like when she's crying and he tries to hug her, she's startled. Right. Um, at first, but then she accepts it. So I genuinely, like, cause also Joni is obviously suicidal and, um, completely PTSD, mm-hmm. um, afflicted. And so I really think that she was just reaching out to him and, uh, it's very, and it's kind of mirrored by the exchange he later on has with Jane. And uh, a lesser man would have taken advantage of Joni in that state. Fuck yes. But yeah. uh, Charlie is just like, I'm your friend. Oh, it's so great. Purity of heart. Uh, mm-hmm. I I really appreciated the, the acting at the end there when I said about the hug, because it's not just Joni who you can read from the back, which is very cool. Um, her hesitance, but also, I mean, as I was watching it, it was like, you could almost see Charlie saying, is she going to misinterpret this? If I, I feel like I should give her a hug. Is she going to misinterpret? How can I do this? You know, or taking advantage of her. Is she going to think I'm taking advantage of her? Yeah. Is she but I really want to comfort her. Yeah. Right. It's great. The great hesitation. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like written all over him and her. Her, as you say, startled, you know, nature. I mean, it's all done from her back and you still get the idea that she, you know, she's startled by it first. She isn't quite sure what he's doing. Then she realizes and just decides to, to give in to, a, you know, this sweet gesture. Mm, so cute. So nice. Heart squeeze. All right, well, let's go to something uh, altogether of a different sense. Leon (laughs) and Khan report that Sai's new employees are not enticing customers, Uh, even at a dime a fuck. 
Their approach has been low cost, but size suggests an alternative. The strangeness and the mighty python-like grip of their snatch. <laughs> and this reminds me that on Carnival, we learned that Asian women's baskets are sideways. Yeah. <laughs> All I could think about during while Cy Tolliver was t- talking was like, Cy Tolliver, poet laureate. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, the exoticism. This is beautiful. This plot line of the Chinese sex slaves is one that's not super often addressed. And it's very much like the cornerstone of our contemporary uh, exoticizing objectification of Asian women. That's a major aspect of it. Uh, and the, the horror of it, I really like how they addressed it, you know, and like Wu when he uh, exposes them and the way the doc reacts and just the, the entire dynamic. I'm really glad that they're just rubbing your face in this. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, no, we've only seen them in that one scene so far. Yeah, and they're talking. They keep about them. It. They keep them hidden. <laughs> yeah, I kind of hope they go a little further with it. Um, actually, because what are their living conditions like? Probably awful. Yeah, there's yeah. this great comedy book called uh, "Practical Guide to Racism," and there's a, a chart of who likes Asian women, and it's like, uh, it's like. Asian men like Asian women. Black men like Asian women. White men like Asian women. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the worst. Go go track down that book if you want a want a good laugh. Wow. It's a good it's a good buy. It makes a good uh, gift for particularly for people who don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> if like, if they're not in on the joke. They're going to think you're a horrible person. <laughs> E.B. has a gastronomical present for Sophia. Fresh kidneys! E.B. delivers Al's message to Alma. She will receive Mr. Swearingen at 2 p.m. E.B. has to admit he wasn't made privy to the reason Al wants to see the Widow Garrett. So is that a genuine gesture, or was he trying to gross her out? Well, I think you just can't tell the difference between fresh meat and meat gone rancid. (laughs) No, I think the fact that it was kidneys was what bothered the, the, the kid. No, she smelled it. She was like, ugh. No, like, yeah. for the freshness of these kidneys, I'm sure they weren't fresh. <laughs> well, what did what Russ will say to EB? You know, ha- having to rub elbows with your betters. Mm. I think that's his constant effort to, like, yeah. get in Alma's graces. But he has no tools to do that. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think he was trying to be genuine. He just... There is no way the man can be ingratiating in a way that's not creepy and <laughs> Yeah. Well, Sophia, I think, is just a good judge of character at this point, And he is oily and gross. And anything she would probably, he would give her, she would say, ugh. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> Indeed. Here's an oily lollipop for you, Sophia. <laughs> Here's some rock candy. I got it from underneath my apron. <laughs> no, I'm all set on rock candy. Thank you. In the queue at Mr. Farnham's absurd restaurant, Charlie accuses Wilcott of stepping on his feet. Also, Char- uh, Wilcott is wearing his fancy outfit from uh, last episode. His Joker-esque outfit. Yes. Charlie grabs him by the ear, drags him outside, throws him in the mud, and punches him, and kicks him, and punches him some more. He asks Wilcott, how does it feel to be helpless, have no one stick up for him? Eventually, Seth comes and pulls Charlie away, bringing him into the hardware store. Charlie refuses to say what Wilcott has done, 
He's keeping a promise to his friend. Guy stepped on my toe is all. From this moment on, I was worried for Charlie. Hmm. I was worried for him all the way through the episode. We're going to say, Mel? Is it just me, or does Charlie Utter's anger not seem... It seems forced. He doesn't. It Whenever doesn't, he's angry, it just never seems feels right. To doesn't me. seem like he's a naturally uh, comfortable being being an angry, angry person. Yeah, it's not his nature at all. Would that yeah. be the actor or the the character? Yeah, is it the actor or the character? Could be the actor. <laughs> I've often thought that if I was an actor, I'd have a very hard time being angry and shouting because that's so not my nature. Mm. When I get angry, I get really quiet. Okay. So it would be very hard for me to be explosive. So maybe Dayton Kelly has the same. Maybe that's his w- one shortcoming. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, pretty good at being angry and menacing in John from Cincinnati. But okay. again, that's unrelated. But yeah, I always thought that, uh, yeah, he was rather menacing. But uh, and, but Charlie Utter is, by nature, a, a very empathetic, um, caretaking kind of person. Yeah, yeah, I get the I get the feeling that Charlie, the problem with him being angry and that kind of thing is that he. Ju- I get the feeling he's just uncomfortable putting himself forward in any situation, and he's always doesn't quite know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So starting a fight with this guy was uncomfortable for him. Yeah, I guess so. He is an awkward kind of fellow, isn't he? Yeah, but he's also a badass. He was Wild Bill Hickok's best friend. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. I right. wonder if he was measuring his sort of anger in this scene because remember the whole pretense was that the guy stepped on my foot. Right. So if he was too angry, everyone would suspect that something was wrong. So he kind of yeah, but I mean, he beat the shit out of him. Well, yeah, like that's pretty angry but, for someone that stepped on your foot. But, but that that can that can escalate. You know, that kind of feeling like yeah. Where at the time, like he started the whole thing as you stepped on my foot, and therefore that then it then it blew from there. Uh, yeah. I love the guy, the extra like that's like right behind him, who's kind of like you could see him sort of trying to act to do his people around him. Like, I wonder what that guy's talking about. Oh, he looks really angry. <laughs> He's like looking around, all concerned. I didn't notice this guy. <laughs> I counted five kicks, five punches, and five off-screen thwacks that could have been either punches or kicks. So I'm going to guess that Charlie hit Wolcott at least 15 times. Woo! So sound beating. Mm-hmm. Dilla Hunt was wearing a flak jacket, and this made the actor's hands sore, uh, Dayton Kelly's hands sore. And on the commentary, Dilla Hunt says that his ribs hurt from when Dayton kicked him. Jeez. <laughs> yep. That was very realistic. Fantastic. Yeah. Another thing that might make um, Charlie seem... Um, awkward in this particular instance is that he has to make sure he doesn't say what he's actually thinking. He can't let himself lose control so much that he says something about Joni. Mm -hmm. His last sentence before the beating fully commences is, and how it fucking feels to be helpless and have no one fucking stick up for you. Right. That's what he gets. And if he got any closer, he would be treading on um, letting letting loose with uh, something he promised not to tell. But I don't understand this because you promised that you didn't tell but then you're talking about all this and Joni's the only person left in town. 
Exactly. You know, so obviously he, right. he's not keeping the secret very well. Because right. he's just, you know, it's dumb. It's and then at mistake. the end, when Wolcott is asking, like, I'm skipping ahead here, but when Wolcott is asking, like, you know, was it Joni? And he's like, I can't tell you. Well, he obviously knows, you know. Right. I know. It it put both him and Joni at risk. Yeah. In doing that. But that happens a lot when you tell somebody and they decide to go <laughs> off and hit somebody. It's yeah. the threat of revenge, too. You tip your hat whenever you pursue revenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for my newbies, was this a satisfying scene? Watching Wolcott being thrashed in the street? Yeah, my note is, yay, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) I was too worried about what this was going to mean for Charlie and Joni to be too satisfied about it, honestly. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't feel any sense of satisfaction of him getting beat up. I didn't know. I expected it to go the other way. I expected Wolcott to beat his ass because Charlie doesn't look. They don't it. seem very matched because Wolcott's so much taller. But I guess Charlie's probably a scrappy fella, so yeah. he's experienced. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, he also, you know, he got violent right away, and before um, Wolcott. I mean, Wolcott is a much. We haven't seen him be physically. Um, violent as far as like hitting people and stuff. He. He uses that knife, the the razor, and and you almost get the feeling that he's much more a he's um, he's a planner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, a, a planner to- so that he can hurt from a distance or yeah or um quietly. Yeah, I think it's likely that the violence he's inflicted has primarily been on women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is what Charlie was saying and. And when he said it, I thought, yeah, you're probably right. Indeed. So on Garrett Dillahunt's commentary, he said that he thought the reason why um, Wilcott didn't fight back was because he kind of wanted the punishment. And that's why he put the razor to his throat. Like it was like he's Mm -hmm. contemplating suicide at this point, but he doesn't have the courage to do it. Yeah. But there's another interpretation that he just doesn't know how to fight a man because he only hurts women mm. like he's just out even though he's physically bigger he's like he's just afraid of of charlie yeah, yeah he, he can kill a woman but he can't be in a fight he doesn't know and how he, he's someone who has a lot of power behind him to protect him from things mm-hmm. so he can he can do all these horrible things without having to actually stand up for himself he relies on consequences which uh we saw uh jari and the magistrate both try to uh shield themselves with like the consequences Mm -hmm. of you know there will be a warrant there will be civilization Mm -hmm. will respond there will be that reaction but in this state of nature of deadwood the consequences aren't always enough yeah and that's the consequences were what i was worried about with charlie and joni Indeed, that's mm-hmm. a, a looming question. But then yeah. the issue is, what, who's going to levy the consequences? Because is George Hurst going to bother to deal with those people because Walcott has a problem with killing women? Like that's the you know, like is that something well, that Hurst can continue to defend? I guess. I mean, I think by the end, that last scene between Charlie and Walcott sealed it up and seems like everybody is okay 
mm-hmm. and there aren't going to be consequences. But um, he could he could tell Hearst anything, you know, about. I mean, he could make Charlie or Joni be a threat of some kind. And he could certainly take out Joni um, if he was sneaky about it. He he could take out Charlie if he was sneaky about it. I think it'd be harder to take out Charlie as uh, the postman and the deputy. Uh, it would require more maneuvering than murdering a whore. Yeah. Yeah. But if, you know, I mean, Charlie is alone a lot. And if he was just, you know, murdered by people unknown. Yeah. Everyone he, would know. <laughs> no, you blame it on, on Indians, on the, mm-hmm. on the heathens. Or the Chinese. Come on, Stephanie. Or the Mexicans. You Mexican. blame it on the natives. Yeah. Of haven't, course. Haven't dealt with Mexicans in Deadwood. That's the other, that's the third group that, you know, fourth group. It's too north. It's very far north. Yeah. Yeah. They got around. <laughs> you know, you blame it on those French Canadian fur trappers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, three characters wearing hats had dialogue. In this scene, Charlie, Wolcott, and Seth bringing our total to seven. E.B. has no information for Al regarding the fisticuffs, except that Charlie accused Wolcott of stepping on his feet. Jenny thinks it might be Utter's corns. <laughs> Al connects the beating to the wagon that left the previous night. Mm-hmm. Al goes downstairs and Sai suggests they have a meeting with the sheriff and his deputy. Let them know that this is the wrong ox to gore. When he said meeting, I, my note is better be peaches. And there were. They look more like pears, though. I got, a, I got a question for you guys. Uh, uh, connecting this meeting with Al and uh, the fact that Sai just passed by. Why does Sai not intervene in Walcott's beating? He actually told one of his minions not to stop it. Why did he allow Charlie Utter to continue to beat Walcott if it was such a terrible thing? Did he not want to be seen as allied with him? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Is that so it? What, like, I don't know. It's an I, interesting choice. I think Sai just does not like Wolcott at all. And he likes, he likes Joni more than Wolcott. He needs Wolcott, but he doesn't like him. So if the guy takes a beating, yeah, what is that to him? I think he also... He's pretty worried about it later. I, I think he also um, has this idea, I don't know if it's true or not, that if these various people that he deals with, whether the commissioner or Wolcott you know, both of whom he's just watched getting, you know, threatened and everything. If they see Deadwood as being this incredibly dangerous, wild place, and he is someone who can keep things organized and moving, then he's that much more valuable to them. Mm. That's an interesting take. Also, uh, but siding with the opposition, with the interlopers, I think would also seriously damage uh size position as an actual member of deadwood right i agree i agree and he you know he he walks a line i mean nobody can really trust him to be on their side at any particular moment he's going to look at the situation and see 
you know, whether it's best for him to just keep his hands clean and keep out of it, which usually, usually it's probably going to be best for him to just stand on the sidelines and wait and see how things shake out. The danger there is that it makes it uh, almost impossible for him to form alliances, like real alliances based on loyalty and, and commitment. He's got nobody. Like Al's got Dan and Johnny and Trixie and the whole goddamn camp. And Cy has Leon and, and Con Stapleton. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to take, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that I don't think that Cy even understands loyalty. Agreed. That it's just a concept that is so distant from him. If you told him that Al's people were loyal to him, he would think that you were being so naive and that all those people, the only reason they're loyal to Al is because he, he, uh, pays them and, you know, that's all they know. And he wouldn't get it that Al does more than, you know, that Al actually takes care of them for real, as opposed to making it seem like he's taking care of them. Sai is a stranger to love. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. What a lonely motherfucker. Mm. <laughs> Only John- he were suicidal, right? As Jonathan would say, fuck Sai. <laughs> <laughs> Dan hey, gets, um, uh, oh, I thought it was real interesting, um, when Al was given that little piece of information and he put the whole thing together. Oh, you mean because he, because he went off with a wagon last night with that somebody was in it that Joni was talking to. And I was like, that's Al's genius. He just puts everything together. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it comes off realistically. It doesn't come off as a, you know, a written device or anything. Uh, you know? Like a, a leap of logic. Yeah. A, a convenience of plot. It's yeah. So they've it's, done a good job of building Al up as a guy who is very observant and connects dots. He's a fantastic yeah. detective. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's the Sherlock smartest Holmes man in town. Yeah. He's well, probably the smartest man in town. And his, uh, we know that his descendant is, uh, Meredith Lovejoy, who's a <laughs> detective of the, <laughs> of the antique variety. <laughs> so dan has just one line in this scene where uh he says oh should i bring him up but he's wearing a hat when he says it so that makes our total eight (laughs) all right the doc sees to wolcott's injuries several of his ribs are broken wolcott wants to see charlie he has wild bill's last letter to his wife doc hopes there'll be no renewal of violence and uh wolcott says yeah sure hope not i didn't do very well yeah, uh, yeah, but a, a gun is the equalizer, right? I expected yeah. Charlie to have a gun pulled on him. That's I when he sat down later on when he sat down at that desk, I was like, "Where is that man's hand? You cannot see his hand, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Why are you so relaxed?" <laughs> I think a Charlie can rely can rely on consequences in a way that Walcott can't because Charlie has actual friends. Like, if Walcott shot Charlie, I'm pretty sure that good old Seth Bullock would just, his eyes would roll over white and he would go straight rage face, disconnect with reality. Uh, He would saunter over there, arms not swinging, and just, like, probably (laughs) choke the life out of Walcott. So, I think he can rely 
a bit more on his friends. Yeah, but would yeah. Walcott know that? I think See, that's I think the thing. So. To, to rely on that, the other person has to understand that consequence and be aware of that consequence. I think he learned it. I think he learned it after the beating, especially as he was uh, informed that Charlie Utter was uh, Wild Bill Hickok's best friend. So it's like he, like Charlie Utter makes friends with dangerous men. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that the, the, him being connected with Wild Bill definitely did have an impact. Um, and now he's got Seth and Walcott definite. I, I would definitely be aware of uh, Seth Bullock's reputation at this point after all the time he spent in the camp. And, uh, you know, I can't, I imagine that he heard about uh, uh, Bullock savagely beating Russell, um, how he, like, he handled the mm-hmm. attack on Jari. Like, you know, Bullock he is, Bullock yeah, is uh, not a man to be underestimated as he underestimated Charlie Utter. Mm. Al walks across the thoroughfare to the hotel, past some really tasty looking fresh bread. (laughs) We get some nice sycophantic dialogue from EB. New suit? Must be your ruddy complexion. (laughs) And we get our first meeting between Al and Alma. It's been half the series, and we're finally getting these two uh, in the room together. He congratulates her on the claim. She says she had always assumed Al had tried to buy her through EB. Also, it must be Al's plotting against Sophia's life that makes the child so afraid. Obviously, there's no way that Sophia knows that, but I love all these little digs that Alma is getting in. And then Al says... Well, Al gets right to it. Your tutor is a Pinkerton agent trying to blame you for your husband's death. Al doesn't like the Pinkertons. The boss has got enough edge. Al is a supporter of the little guy. Al's plan is to get the Pinkertons to confess their plot against Alma on paper. He'll give it to her. And hey, if she wants to match their offer of 50000 well, hey, that'd be great. <laughs> they, all the things she was bringing up, I was like, oh yeah, Al did that. He's not such a great guy. <laughs> no. I love this scene so much. As I mentioned at the beginning of our recording, I've got I've got so much on this. If you'd like to hear me, <laughs> let me know. Or if, were yeah. your three pages on this one scene? <laughs> uh, no, actually, it's two. Oh, it's two give us give us your your choicest bit. Um, well, I guess like I really love like the overall theme behind this is that uh, we get to see the different definitions of society. Um, like Alma is a society woman. She's supposed to be the manifestation of decency, uh, which actually Al has a lot of disdain for that. You'll remember a conversation that he had with Merrick about the ability of truth and decency to work together. Um, but in order to talk to Alma, he knows that he has to perform the role of member of society. So when he knocks on her hotel room, he's greeted by a gatekeeper of society. And in order to gain entrance to cross the threshold, he has to say the proper magic words. He has to say, Mrs. Garrett, how do you do? Thanks for seeing me. It's like very formal. He's agreeing. He's signing the social contract in order to converse with her and participate in this exchange. But it's also really important to know that this social contract is unwritten. And this scene, Al makes it apparent that even though uh, social contracts are one of the ways in which Deadwood has functioned so far, uh, as we're being called into the fold, quote unquote, it's written contracts that have weight 
Um, that's why he's saying, I'm going to get them to write out their fucking offer and sign it and I'll give it to you. But uh, again, as I just swore, uh, that's related to the fact that Al breaks that social contract almost immediately. But even though we've talked, like you guys have talked amazingly about the role of swearing in this show and everyone's talked about it in a lot of really different ways, but there's another side to swearing other than just say, um, you know, trying to push back and assert a difference between civilization and a state of nature. But there's also swearing out of passion. And that's what Al does in this meeting. He's constantly swearing out of, out of, uh, indignance and, uh, offense at the fact that these Pinkertons are trying to roll over her. So I think that's one of the main reasons that Alma is not really offended by his fucks and bastards and cocksuckers. It's uh, she tries to control it in over in order to maintain her position, but she realizes that they're having a really frank discussion, which is something that she's always wanted to have, even though the men in her life are always, um, you know, trying to speak to her in code. But uh, she's always aspired to that sort of open communication, and she's violated her role as a gatekeeper, gatekeeper so many times. She's sworn out of passion. All I asked you to was get the goddamn doctor. And uh, she's also, you know, told Farnham shit or get off the chamber pot. <laughs> so it's like their their little battle over language is really great. And uh, I love the dynamic of this scene because it's a great contrast to the effort that Al made to draw Seth into the fold, as Dan said, because uh, Al is doing the same thing with Alma. He's essentially saying... I'm going to be honest with you about this setup. I'm not going to take their $50,000 and we're go- I hate these assholes and you know, you are instead a pillar of this community. So join me in forming a society. Yeah. So, yeah, so thanks to a Pinkerton yeah. plot, they can actually form an alliance. So it's like allying in the face of a common enemy, which is a- an increasing theme in this show. That's how like everyone is kind of um, circling the wagons as you have these outside influences. You have the United States trying to call Deadwood as a whole to the fold, but as a result, threatening everyone else's holdings. So, and then I guess like emotionally, philosophically, affectionately, I really like the way that the scene is structured because it can show you how the truth can genuinely be decent by the participants agreeing there's a social contract and accepting that such a contract must always be unwritten. So you really get to see how they're similar and they have similar senses of humor. They're so goddamn charming. And then you have this scene at the end, the little exchange when he gets up. What tea do you enjoy? She asks him, (laughs) calling back to his quip. And then he says, I like that fucking black Darjeeling and very cheekily places a finger on his lips, which is just fantastic. And also, I think really really showcases that this is probably the most attractive Al has ever been in this show. (laughs) Um, like his whole deal the tie his hair his mustache I would fuck Al Swearingen until he had another show (laughs) it just is so good it's so sexy it's so ridiculous and then she just gives him this like fabulous look of asservation and just she looks so gorgeous as a result and it it has this sense that she almost invited the obscenity so Uh that they could kind of like share this little moment and that's why I, I really love this scene and then i have a question off of my <laughs> ramble okay why does al tell alma the truth about how much money they offered him mm, you mean he could have 
said higher. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. Fifty thousand. I guess a lot I'm, of money. She. Uh, I don't know. She might. She, he just might be afraid. She might find out somehow that he lied. I guess. Mm. Or he has just a lot of respect for her. I think that might be the case. I think that he really is trying to form a society, and it is in her in, in his interest that she be on his side. So you know, he does the same thing with with Bullock. At, you know, when he returns his guns, he just ha- does this very like straightforward, like you know, let's be, don't fucking leave. Essentially, don't run away, stay. So it's just so good. I love yeah. this scene. Yeah, I think I think Al has two different modes. Well, he has many different modes, but two real big ones. One is when he's trying to, as you say, form alliances, when he's trying to um, get someone on his team. And then there's the people who are Mark. And she was a Mark back when the show started. And he tried to cheat her out of everything. Um, you know, and EB is the one who would play with the numbers to get, you know, a few extra bucks out and all of that. I think generally uh, Al is above that. He's He wouldn't risk something much larger on a few thousand dollars. You know, trying to say, oh yeah, uh, no, they offered me 75000 or whatever. For $25,000, he's not going to risk losing the whole deal. That's and, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and she, that's and a good she, point. And she could, you know, it's not unheard of for her to find out the number from other sources down the road. He doesn't know who she's going to talk to. Most likely she's going to be in touch with these different people. So, you know, he's he's a little too smart to I mean, he's played pretty um even ball with people when he wants when there's a bigger prize that he's looking for. He he's not greedy that way. And that's one of the things he's had to get on EB about at various points of, you know, don't mess with the numbers on this one. I need you to offer what I told you to offer. You know, things like that. Right. So when I go back and I say to that person, they, they're not looking at me like you're lying or because he's right. trying to build alliances. But so that, that might be it might be that he's not being greedy. But I also I want the main thrust of his uh, going over to Alma to really be a respect for her because he saw her climb out of her addiction and out of, uh, you know, how she was supplicated by her husband. And now she's become a very important person and a very respectable person. And I, I just want him to kind of go over to her and really just respect her as a, as a human being and be straight with her. And I think she really appreciates that. So she teases, I think it's kind of, kind of teasing about the language Mm -hmm. and also about, Hey, remember when you killed my husband (laughs) and and tried to kill the little girl? Like I have to say these things, but once they're out of the way, and at the end, he's leaving, and he says, "I love that fucking black jar, de- jar dealing, black jar dealing, <laughs> jar, 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 jar dealing, black jar dealing." 
Darjeeling. I love that there fucking black tea. I love that tea. I love that fucking black tea. <laughs> and he gives that like, oh, I'm being cheeky. And she kind of smiles like, oh, you little rascal. Bad <laughs> I boy elsewhere. Should... It's great. So good. Well, it it was a power. The whole scene was was a power thing between the two. And I agree that, I mean, he does respect her. He respects Bullock. He respects a, he respects a lot of these people based on when they show themselves to be intelligent, when they show themselves to be people who are um, of substance of some sort. He, mm-hmm. he has respect for them. And I think he shows that respect, but she also, she demands that respect during the scene by those little things that you mentioned. She lets him know that, you know, she knows who he is. She knows what he's been doing, even though she's been sitting upstairs in a hotel room all of this time. And she knows who he is. And that's worth some respect on his part as well. Again. Um, you know, that she she has managed to understand what's going on and his place in everything, um, even though she's been sitting in a hotel room. And um, and that whole thing about the language, that's another way to uh, to take control of the situation. It's also one of the ways in which 19th century women were able to participate in conversation. If someone violates decorum, the gatekeeper is obligated to respond. You saw there was a great moment when Alma is sitting down to dinner with her father and Bullock and Bullock's, you know, he drops a dam and he says, excuse me. And she says, not at all, Mr. Bullock. Thank you for acknowledging my presence. So mm-hmm. it's like break, breaking the rules gives women the opportunity to participate because they're supposed to control respectability. So it's like that. So it's like she can interrupt Al mm-hmm. by by uh, controlling his language, even though I, even though it's apparent that she doesn't really mind, considering she herself has sworn with effect. She's uh. she's also drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, who she's not. Um, she's making it clear that he can't treat her the way he treats the other women in the camp. Is there something you wanted to say, Matt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, you close us out of this scene so we can move on. I was just, Woo! I was going to say like the difference between how Al treats people and how Cy treats people is like really apparent in like all the allies that Al is, is gathering and all the mm-hmm. just, you know, Cy has nothing but worthless lackeys basically. Mm-hmm. And, <sighs> The few friends he did have left him, you know, is the guy from season one, Eddie or something, and Joni, uh, and uh, Eddie Sawyer. What about Jack the bartender? He's, he's always Joni's good. To, he's always he's always good to loan fourteen hundred dollars to people. <laughs> Has he done anything for for, for Cy? No, he just he just tends bar. <laughs> On the commentary with Garrett Dillahunt, he says, and I think this is serious and he's not joking that one plan was for Wolcott to try to change his ways and he would fall in love with Alma (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think that would work and this is the best part Alma was going to start a reading room and Wolcott along with Merrick would join yeah um a reading room and an ambulatory club that is all kinds of wacky (laughs) 
<laughs> so this would have been unrequited love, I assume. Like him having a crush on her. She's a, she's already got Richardson at her heels. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see them they fight. Should, yeah, they should make an ambulatory reading room club. So I looked <laughs> up what books were popular in the time. Uh, in 1877, two books published, Black Beauty. Mm. Oh, and, I like that book. <laughs> and The American by Henry James. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They may have also read some uh, earlier earlier published books, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, Through the Looking Glass, and What Alice Found There, Little Men, Around the World in Eighty Days, Middlemarch, Far from the Madding Crowd, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Mm. And then I found a book <laughs> called The Convent School. Oh. The Convent School or Early Experiences of a Young Flagellant. What? What? <laughs> what? Does, that mean, does that mean somebody who gets beat? Somebody who yeah. like self is self beats themselves. Oh. Yeah. Like, yeah. Flagellation. Well, that's self flagellation. Yeah, flagellation. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, wow. Is there like a description anywhere? Well, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. A 19th century work of sadomasochistic pornography written under the pseudonym Rosa Coote and published in London in 1876. Ooh. Numerous flagellations supplemented by filthy tortures are tedious and revolting, is the uh, description there. And I did find the first chapter, which is chapter one, The Early Life of Lucille. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to read you a, an excerpt. Yes. Our protagonist is 12 years old in this, so keep that in mind. Oh, good grief. Dark. Miss Birch, with heaving bosom and quite a deep blush upon her face, (laughs) I feel as ashamed at bearing her naughty posteriors as if I was going to suffer the degradation and humiliation myself. But come, Lucille, dear, you must bear it, and I hope you will be a better and more diligent girl in the future. Then catching me by the wrist, as I stood by her side, covered with confusion, she tried to lay me across her knees, but I struggled and screamed, No, 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 I won't be whipped. Oh, oh, dear Papa, do forgive me this time. My face quite crimson and streaming with tears. The drawers were unbuttoned, and I could feel they were quite pulled down my thighs, exposing the entire surface of my smarting rump. But I had only a few moments for reflection before the blows fell again in rapid succession, cutting, tearing, and scratching the skin whilst the boiling blood in my veins seemed to throb as if it must spurt through the pores at every burning touch of the rod. My head was pressed against the tumultuously heaving bosom of my governess, (laughs) and notwithstanding the intensity of my suffering, I could plainly hear the beating of her heart, and knew that her thighs were tightly compressed together whilst a strange tremor pervaded her entire frame. There, there, that will do, said Papa in a very excited tone. I've drawn the blood for her. Now, Miss Dunce, kneel and kiss the rod, and ask your kind governess to forgive you. Wow. I feel like the phrase heaving bosom was the most common phrase in any book a hundred years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it. Rump, spurt, rod, good stuff. (laughs) The entire thing is online, so I will be posting a link to that Uh, in the Facebook group, or again, you can go to the show notes, and you will find that wonderful work of fiction from 1876, which I like to imagine Alma and Mr. Wilcott and Merrick all reading in a, in a little crowded room. Maybe maybe I, they got the dining room, like, after hours. Alma could read that. Neither of those two assholes could read that book. I sincerely hope that Sophia's reading Black Beauty. <laughs> <laughs> they get the books confused. <laughs> she's, reading, she's reading that, and they're reading Black Beauty. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
We have a new member to our reading group. Please uh, welcome Richardson. (laughs) (laughs) Rump is pretty. Pretty, not pretty, pretty. True. (laughs) At the number 10, a hooplehead says he won't fuck a chink because, oh, the shame of it. Leon tries buying around for the hoopals. Khan tells us that Chinese Chinese whores can milk us of our sorrows and feelings of being forsaken. <laughs> he made that one up himself, didn't he? Yeah. He milked them of their sorrows. <laughs> yes. yes. Gross. I mm. never felt them Chinese women. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> Ugh. Also, Hawkeye's in the background, and he informs us that he calls his penis the Jolly Roger. Why did he say that? No one asked. <laughs> no, no one cares. Some people just like to offer. I missed that somehow. Okay. I call mine Johnny Roger. Johnny Roger. Johnny Roger. Jolly Roger. I don't think it matters. <laughs> I think it was Johnny Roger. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Roger. Uh, yeah. We have four characters speaking while wearing hats. <laughs> we have the Hooplehead with a jealous mother. Hawkeye, Rutherford, and Tom. That brings our total to 12. I have no idea what I said. The total I don't word. remember either. Well, we will cover that at the end. A lot less than these. I don't think any of us came up with the large numbers. At the meeting, and yes, they are eating peaches, Sai <laughs> pleads for us all to act like adults. This includes not beating people in the street, Charlie. Al wants to know about that wagon last night. What was up with that? So I says, eh, that's not the point. We need to treat Hearst with respect or he'll replace us or simply kill us. He'll buy the judge, the jury, the witnesses. Al doesn't care, so Sai turns his bull over. He is through. And then we have Doc telling Charlie about the letter. Right in front, like, Sai Tolliver is basically right there. Like, he should have pulled Charlie out of side, like, somewhere else. Mm. You know? So dumb. <laughs> well, that could have been a, a nice protection for Charlie. Now people know, you know? So, does I mean, does the doc really know the the whole relationship with Cy and Wolcott and everything? I'm not so sure he does. No, I doubt it. No. But he likes Charlie. Yeah, so he wouldn't know who he should say what in front of or not say um, if he doesn't know the connection. And of course, uh, now Cy's going into it basically making it clear to everybody exactly what happened and exactly why this is all about. Here we have Sai doing that again. This has been mentioned before that Sai keeps giving away the store as far as information goes. Maybe, but he's not wrong. You don't want to poke Hurst. True, that, but... That's a powerful man with powerful friends, and... That's very true. Not, but... not beating people in the street is kind of like... Kind of obvious. Let's That's not, not what I'm talking about, that. though. Oh, what I'm are you talking, talking about? about when he stood up and proceeded to tell everybody pretty much exactly what had happened, exactly why Charlie beat him up in the street. Mm-hmm. What if people got killed by the representative of, you know, he went on and on about, he laid it all out, pretty much, what had, what had happened. He sure did. Murder, or more than one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, I don't remember which one of you, you know, were on his case the last time when the commissioner was getting, I think it was when the commissioner was getting assaulted and he went into a long thing about, 
that basically told everybody what was going on? Anger loosened my tongue. Irritation loosened my tongue. That's what he said to Merrick or something. Yeah, something like that. But, uh, I mean, again, I kind of felt like, okay, we're explaining to the audience again. Um, you know, stuff to make sure everybody got it. But, uh, I mean, it also did make sure everybody in all the major people in town knew what it was all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but who's at this meeting? Uh, Al. Al? I guess Al, Seth, Saul, Charlie. These are all guys who, who know what's going on. Um, well, Tom Nuttall doesn't. I think Tom Nuttall doesn't know, but he seems kind of thick. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't get it. Was the doc there? Yes. Yeah, the doc. I mean, was I there. know he was there at the I... end. He was there for the whole meeting, right? Mm-hmm. He was there for the whole meeting. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. see, as Sai is saying these things, like after he said everything, Tom goes, "Did he condescend, deputy, to your yelp of fucking pain?" Like he doesn't get it. Like Sai just talked about. The beating and and all that and and Tom is still hung up on oh because he stepped on Charlie's foot. Tom doesn't get it. Tom's an idiot. But and everybody else they either know or figured out. Like I feel like Sai is talking in code, but he's also saying what happened. But they didn't know specifically what happened. They knew that something like Seth and they and still Saul. don't know specifically what. Oh, happened. they have they have a pretty good idea at this point. I'm sure. But I feel like they knew before Sai confirmed it. Hmm. They knew something big had happened, but Charlie wasn't talking. And they didn't have the pieces like Al did of the wagon. Al brought that up. So between what Al said and what Cy said. But maybe it's smart of Cy to give them a little bit more information so they don't start investigating and, you know, angering Wolcott by picking at the scab. Cy's telling them. In code, almost, this is what happened. Let's not, you know, fly off the handle here because we are replaceable by Indeed. men with power. Maybe. Sai I think he could have said I mean, that fuck, with less. Yes, fuck Sai, but I I think he's kind of right. We Tread carefully. Charlie, what you did was noble, but it was also reckless. He's definitely right, and I feel like you know, Hurst is going to be there eventually. We know this, so this is going to be a problem. Al's response to the uh, that closes out that meeting is kind of the best. Oh, well, Sai, all that geologist did was step on Utter's foot. <laughs> just the the barely concealed glee in that statement just is yeah. so beautiful. It's so good. Al is just like you're just falling apart, my rival, right? Right. So good. So good. Well, Saul is wearing a hat in this scene, but he has no lines. So the count stands at 12. Mm-hmm. EB is upset that he wasn't invited to the gathering of worthies, cocksuckers, cunt lickers. Oh, no, they're coming this way. Quick, Richardson, change places. <laughs> Seth knocks on Alma's door. She confesses to feeling better in the afternoons than in the mornings. He offers Code. to lo- yeah. Yep. He offers yep. to leave camp. He doesn't wish to make things more difficult for her. She says, "It's your decision to make. Don't force me to make it for you." I thought she was so on target. Mm-hmm. It would be so much easier for him to leave mm-hmm. and not have to deal with 
you know, her being pregnant or a child and blah, 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 blah. And he wants her to tell him to do it. And we talked about this before, but we like how she's telling uh, Seth, stop forcing me to have the burden of making these decisions. Yep. This is not fair that I'm going to decide your fate. And then I, if, if I decide wrong, that I have to live with it. Yep. Oh so yeah. It's nice to see that she agrees with us because she, that's what she tells him. Mm-hmm. I've, I have had this conversation in my life. Mm. <laughs> not about pregnancy, but about a lot of other stuff. Mm. In one case about him getting married. Mm. That's rough. It's such a good scene. It's so well-structured. And it does kind of bring me back again to that um, discussion that Al and Merrick had about the ability of truth to also be decent. Because, you know, the late 19th century standard of decency really does interfere with truth. It's, like, not just language that can be indecent, but entire concepts can be indecent. You know, pregnancy via adultery. It's an indecent act. And because it's an indecent act, it's for many quote unquote respectable people, it is an unspeakable topic. Mm. So they're they're dancing around it is is fascinating, and I just uh, Seth is just the king of unspeakable topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do like the way that they have them continually talk in code. She doesn't talk in code as much with other people as she does with Seth. Mm-hmm. And Seth talks in code constantly with her, with his wife, just with women in general, it seems like. Big time. But less with, with men, but even with men, he still does it. He talks in code all the time. Yep. I recall when he uh, storms into the gem saloon gripping the, uh, the, the shield and talking about Russell, like, you know, if he don't die then he's going to go tell these people and he'll be right as rain about you, cocksuckers, quote-unquote, if he don't die. So mm-hmm. he does that. He he yeah. talks in code whenever he's talking about something that's unspeakable and wrong. Yeah, like he always has to kind of distance himself from from it, not not really face the reality of what's going on. Yeah. Sai tells Wolcott if he wants someone to cuff him around a little more, he can arrange that. Because another <laughs> meeting with Charlie could result in Wolcott ending up dead. And as Sai leaves, he yells at Evie, I don't know. I don't know. So Evie yells at Richardson, go back, go back. What was what was um Wolcott's particular kink again? Uh, getting ground on by a bloomerless, uh, tightless lady. Okay, uh, I, thought, I thought it was so, being dominated, kind of. Yeah, I mean, that's his, like, that's the manifestation of of the uh, nearly crippling shame uh, that makes up his uh, paraphilia, I suppose. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, you know, his self-loathing, he um, nurses that with uh, disdain from women. I was wondering if, yeah, I was wondering if he was just, like... Uh, if he was enjoying abuse from Charlie and stuff, but it's probably, yeah, just from women. Indeed. His, like, own, like, the way that toxic masculinity has poisoned him has made him 
completely unable to tolerate humiliation levied by men, which is, I think, the big reason he goes and murders those women is because uh, Sai humiliated him. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... And uh, now he's been humiliated by Charlie Utter. How he's go? How is he going to deal with this? By being nice and giving him a letter. <laughs> <laughs> womp womp. By starting yeah. a reading room. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Wilcott would really would like uh, the convent school or early experiences of a young flagellant. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt, but that'll be the first book they read. <laughs> but then he would want to punish someone for having made him read it. Yeah, I don't think he could read it. I think he would hear what it was about and then be like, nope. I can't even have anyone know that I would even consider reading this. <laughs> That's true. He probably would be like, uh, I'm sorry. I, I can't I can't join. I gotta go. Something suddenly came up. Yeah, that is the type of book that people probably enjoy in secret. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, Especially at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Trixie is quitting the hardware store. All that harping. Al makes a pun. Is it the Jew that's harping? Because, you know, Jews harp. Uh, it turns out they're harping because Trixie has been erratic with her decimals. Al says, don't blame them because of your fears. And we also get a clue that she's been at the hardware store, at least partially on Al's instructions, so she can deliver gossip to him. Mm-hmm. Life coach. Exactly. It's nice. <laughs> It's so nice. It was really sweet of him to yeah. do that. Mind your decimals. We've had that indication that she was there on his orders before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the Jews heart, my friend, I have a friend who used to have one and he never used to know what it was called. And he always just called it a twang doodle. But <laughs> <laughs> he knocked his tooth out with it. He was put it, he put it in his mouth wrong and he like flicked the little metal thing and it bounced back and knocked his tooth out. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, awful. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, for those that don't know, it is a Jew's harp, in quotation marks. Uh, it's a, an instrument, you, you put it in your mouth, it's got like a reed attached to a frame, and then you pluck it to produce a note. It makes a very twangy sound. Yeah, it's also called a... A twang doodle? No, it's, <laughs> it's also called a mouth harp, Ozark harp, trump, or juice harp. Snoopy plays one. Aww. Snoopy plays one? Snoopy from the Peanuts in that no, I uh, don't remember that. I don't yeah, remember playing it. It's the movie when Charlie Brown is really good at spelling and he goes to New York for the <laughs> spelling contest and he loses. I have never heard of that one. Oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. And Snoopy plays plays the harp the harp. The twang noodle. He plays it uh, and it, the rhythm of it helps Charlie Brown spell correctly. Oh, very cute peanuts movie. Sidetrack. Bonus episode. (laughs) (laughs) No one seems to know why it's called a Jews harp. Mm. No apparent connection to Jews or Judaism. I think uh, there could be an implication, you know, that it's uh, a much cheaper version than a Uh, harp. Than an actual harp. Okay. Yeah, that that tracks with stereotypes. Yeah, I had assumed that it had to do with it being able to you put it in your pocket and travel with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But. That's interesting. I love this scene between Al and Trixie. Yeah, yes. I have note here that their relationship really has changed. 
Does he have no lot. no hard feelings about her leaving him? I guess anymore. Yeah, I think he got over it. Um, I think one of the main things that kind of shifted him away from it is that um, there's that scene last season where uh, Trixie and Al are watching Jewel and the Doc dance, and Trixie looks up at him and smiles, and it's like Al looks down like, fuck, she forgave me. (laughs) And so there's this, like, I think there's kind of a shift there where it's, you know, and then he stops sleeping with her, and it's like they become friends almost. Yeah. Oh, I want Al to get a new girlfriend that he can confide in. Well, he confides in Dolly, sort of. Yeah, but she's not his equal in Dolly. Dolly was replaced this episode by a head in a box. Yes, that's mm-hmm. how little. So that's that how little he thinks of Dolly. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, whose head is that? Yeah, whose head is that? That's the Indian head from the first episode, isn't it? It's in a box. Uh, episode four. A guy rides in after Bill was shot, carrying the Indian head. Oh, is it four? I didn't yeah. know they kept it. <laughs> yeah. When when Al started talking to that between the uh between size the the Yes, exactly the two stooges between that scene and then Al's scene, it's like I just wrote it's getting more and more structured like Shakespeare all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean between the the uh size stooges are so typical for, you know, Shakespearean comedic relief. And then to have this, you know, soliloquy like they had, it's just like, okay, this, they're just diving right into Shakespearean structure here. Yeah, I told you it gets more and more like this. Yeah, you told, you did. You were right. And I still remember when you asked me originally, like, oh, it's not like a bunch of kids swearing at each other, like, language. <laughs> like, yeah. no, it's not. It's no. not. It's pretty advanced uh, with the talking. Mm-hmm. It is advanced with the talking. <laughs> uh, you guys called him a uh, life coach. In my notes, I call him Mr. Good Advice. <laughs> Seth, ha- <laughs> Seth has deduced why Charlie beat Wilcott in the thoroughfare. Trixie comes to apologize. She's prickly when she's wrong. She also has advice for Seth. Moses already did the heavy lifting with the tablets, which I, I'm interpreting as meaning perhaps you can stand to be a little less holier than thou, and that would lighten the atmosphere as well. Pretty much. That's how I got it too. Yeah. Without being quite so judgmental. mm Mm-hmm. She hates it. So what was he judging her decimals? Is that that was the problem? No, he's judging um, her relationship with Saul. We didn't see it though, right? Well, he's constantly calling her the whore. Well, not constantly, no, but he is, he not. has, you know, he gets frustrated and he's like that whore. Like he's, uh, he judges her for her profession and it's apparent. And yet, like, so she's very frustrated with his hypocrisy. I think that's the main aspect of it of like, you judge me, you judge my boss, you judge all of us. And then and you're Seth. fucking all And Saul, too. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Even if he doesn't say it. I also think she kind of projects sometimes too. Like, yeah, I, I think she makes it more than it is. But mm-hmm. I mean, there is an element of him not feeling like she's good enough for Saul. Yeah, indeed. And she has a line here, which I won't say because I'm sure it's someone's quote. <laughs> but then Timothy Oliphant has this reaction face that is fantastic. 
And he looks up and he just says to himself, like, huh. Which, oh, yeah, I guess you can't say it. Yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. not going to say it, but I yeah. may have made an animated GIF, GIF of this. <laughs> it's it so as good. I, as I love this reaction. He definitely takes notice. And yeah, Saul's face, great. too. Saul's reaction to that is also incredibly charming. Mm-hmm. Trixie is but the Saul- best. Trixie. Trixie her, is great. I can't language. imagine this show without Trixie. Her dialogue is also very Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. She just goes. Saul, on. though, I got the feeling Saul is used to Trixie saying stuff like that and takes it more, much more in stride now than Seth. Seth is definitely like, oh, uh, okay then. I think Saul is also proud of it. I think he's very proud of Trixie. Uh huh. Which I think she also struggles with. Like, you know, you know, he stares my eyes long and like. Yeah. <laughs> she's so I think she's like confused and disturbed by uh his love for her, his his sincerity and his pride and the fact that he's not ashamed or disturbed by her profession or trying to change her in any way. So I think she's constantly having to negotiate that of like having a new relationship with someone who is proud of you, even though you're a whore. <laughs> mm. So I love it. And yeah, yeah. Don't be shitty. If you want to fuck me. Uh, <laughs> it's just difficult to imagine this series without Trixie. If she really was supposed to die in the pilot. <gasps> I can't even imagine. I, what would they have done with Saul? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, she's just great. They barely do anything with him now. Besides, Yeah. That. He's kind of wasted. Yeah. I wish they would. Well, we'll see. What would they do with Al? I mean, because a lot of his growth, you see through his relationship with Trixie, too. Mm-hmm. It is night in the camp. Khan and Leon spot a white male emerging from a Chinese whore hut. They want him to complete a survey behind this crate <laughs> on a scale of one to five, with one being, I will never fuck a chink. And five being that snatch was well worth a dime. How would you rate your experience tonight? The man gives Khan and Leon a gold star rating and mentions a line for the horrors. The men in the line are being kept in order by a very tall celestial who Khan glumly remarks has proven to be better suited than they are in every sense. Love it. Funny. Yelp review. And, <laughs> Uh, I love the camera work on this when it pans down and it then they duck like behind that uh, crate or whatever and then they stand back up and the camera pans it back up with them kind of following how you know their movements body language just a little observation I like the camera work in that scene okay also that actor's name the actor who's playing the survey taker Keith Stevenson, and they say in the commentary that, uh, at least at the time, he was Paula Mackelson's boyfriend. Oh! Who's Paula Mackelson? Trixie. Oh, okay. Although the survey taker is holding a hat, he doesn't actually <laughs> wear it until he exits the scene. So I couldn't count him. Oh. And now we go to the uh, big soliloquy. Al is speaking to the chief, or more accurately, the chief's head in a box. Sai was going to make Wilcott his slave by holding a secret over him, but that half-assed knight-errant Charlie may know the secret too. But to be sure, Al's going to visit Charlie's postal business under the pretense of mailing a package, or as he puts it, and as the dimwit nobility that made him intercede may now make him reticent, you, chief, will be my prop employ. 
Al assures the chief, no worry, there's no package on the address. I won't be giving you away. I'm glad I kept you. You're fun to talk to. <laughs> That's so much funnier now that I know what that was all about. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Then, speaking of really nice camera work and lighting and everything, it's, it's quite beautiful in that scene. Yeah, where he's like kind of reclining on his desk with a drink and the glittering effect. Very gold light. Very nice. Beautifully shot scene. And McShane. You How did he not do. win an Emmy for this? I know. Especially this episode. He kills it. He really does. He's all over this this episode. There's a lot of great acting on TV that never goes noticed by Emmys. Yeah. But still, James Spader, come on. <laughs> <laughs> for Boston Legal, come on. If you ever want to demonstrate to somebody why Deadwood is known for its Shakespearean language, you should have them watch this scene because it is so weird and wordy and unlike anything else you would see on television. Yeah. That was something when that scene between um, Alma and Seth, when I was saying that about her not letting him get away with trying to get her to, that's something you don't see on television either. And I didn't mention that, but. It's uh, it's just not something I've seen dealt with um, a lot in entertainment. And the same way that these soliloquies are just not something that you run across, and certainly not this language. And now we have a pretty sad scene. Charlie tells Jane, those packages you're in charge of should be halfway to Cheyenne. Is it Tuesday already? No, it's Thursday. Oh, fuck. She confesses that she passed out drunk in a graveyard, and people must have beat on her. She doesn't know who... But it's getting the upper fucking hand on her. It's a sad confession. So yeah. he sends her upstairs. She needs some help, and it's sad that we know she doesn't get it. <laughs> History. He says something about, and I, I think I know what was going on, but I may, I kind of was a little confused. She says something about, um, so she has to leave in five days, and he kind of shakes his head. So did she miss, like? Was it five days ago that she was supposed to leave for, or a few days ago or whatever, that she was supposed to leave, like, for business, that kind of thing? Oh, she's mailing his packages or delivering yeah. his packages, and she was supposed to take them and deliver them uh, before Tuesday. And so he's like, you're late. She's like, oh, it's it's Tuesday already? No, no it's Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. And then she then she's like, oh, so I still have a little while before I, Tuesday. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's oh. what I thought was going on. But yeah. My brain kind of skipped a beat for a minute. Okay. Maybe. So no one's getting their mail. <laughs> yeah, well, that wouldn't have been unusual for the day. It fits back in with our reader's theater. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's Bitches why be you too drunk. That. That's why you picked that reader's theater. Exactly. Yes, you had it planned. Thanks, that guys. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for playing along. <laughs> <sighs> Al has a package to deliver. Oh, wait, there's no address. And then Al tries to draw out the truth from Charlie, suss out what he knows. Joni told me what she saw. Aha, wait, wait. she saw nothing. No, I don't mean see in the sense of seeing. And he goes, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that he caught him in the lie. Yeah. I know. I, I have, you know, that, uh, you know, Al is going to use anybody to get to Cy and Hurst, and uh, <laughs> Charlie is real danger. I again, I was really concerned, and then I've just got, but Charlie isn't stupid. 
No. Nope. Al overstepped it, man. Yeah. Very few people can tell Al to get lost. Yeah. I always like it when people are not stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Half-assed night errant, but not stupid. <laughs> and it's nice, too, because this is a great moment in which, you know, Al has been just killing it all day. He's just been batting 100 all day, and he just whiffs. It's, you know, it's night now, day's over, whiffs. Yeah. He takes mm-hmm. one, he pulls a sigh, one step too far, and, uh, yeah, she and told me to. And nope. he says something to the effect of, uh, to the chief, he's like, eh, you can't win them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, Charlie, Charlie does seem like a guy that people would underestimate a lot. As but, Walcott did. Right, I, and I was just thinking how a lot of people in this episode underestimate him. Except for Joni. No, she underestimates him. She doesn't think oh. he's going to go beat the shit out of Walcott. I'm still not sure that that's true. All right. So I don't know if this is a stupid question or not, but did he actually plan on mailing that chief's head? Or no. Okay, or it was just a pretext. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, is that the only package you have laying around? Like, what the hell? <laughs> It's so weird. It's so strange. I think Al thought it was funny. Well, it is funny, I, but it's it's really weird. I could see him finding that very funny. Hmm. <laughs> he Al's just took weird. it out for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take the air, Chief. It's like he's got his box, just like William has his oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> It's my, it's my oatmeal friend. So what's he, what's he really keeping it for, though? What's what's the purpose of this? I don't understand. What else would you do with a head? I don't know. Bury it? What are you <laughs> going to do with that? Shrink it? Yes. <laughs> Put it on a polish. I think that's Al's position. He's like, I don't really know why I keep you around, but now I'm glad I did. And so it's just kind of one of those things. It's, I guess maybe it's a maybe it's a sign of the times. I just want there to be, like, ambulatory clubs in, like, every city, except Deadwoods is weird because you bring props. (laughs) Boxes, oatmeal, Oatmeal. like, you can't take a walk without having something weird in your hand. Weird antler. (laughs) Yes, antlers. (laughs) I love it. Well, Jane spoke, and she is wearing a hat that brings our total of characters who speak while wearing hats to 13. E.B. asks... Jane. Oh, Jane, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. E.B. asks Al why he was left out, and Al says, with the information discussed at the meeting, you would have pursued blackmail, getting yourself murdered. E.B. wants to know if he's still the mayor, as far as Al is concerned, in perpetuity. And I love this smile from E.B. He just wants to be included. He's like, yay! Who would he have attempted to blackmail? Walcott. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe Sai. Yeah. (sighs) But didn't he didn't he already like have a run in with Wolcott and Wolcott and smarted him? You wouldn't think he'd think he could blackmail him. Oh sure he would. He would want revenge. Be like, haha, I finally got you. You got me, I'm gonna fuck you. Like, you know, mm. I think that Evie would have been that thoughtless that he would have seen it as an opportunity to get the upper hand. Uh, maybe. But it may not be the reason why L excluded E B. It's just the reason he gave E B. Yeah. Evie's also super annoying, and, <laughs> yeah, and having him involved and having him involved w- would just be an extra annoyance, as Al expressed 
after, you know, stop walking with me, E.B. And uh, just uh, his patience at this time for E.B. is thinning. Yep. Oh, but it was a great smile from E.B. Um, yes. He's a, he's, a, he's a very oily character, as we know. Like, literally, he's damp. But <laughs> I still really like that smile. I felt, yes. I felt good for the, him. The smile is genuine. Exactly. Yeah. He's a happy puppy. Aww. Dumb, Friends. Dumb puppy. Like a dirty ass puppy. Yeah. <laughs> Al thinks Tolliver has fucked himself up the ass by getting into sick business with Hearst geologists. He's also proud of Bullock for putting the camp above his own interests of justice. So things are looking up. So Dan doesn't have to go to Cheyenne to recruit the muscle. Johnny is very perceptive. He noticed that Al is still carrying that package. I don't know if I agree with Al about Seth, uh, you know, his growing maturity uh, in terms of thinking about the camp. Because uh, what did what did uh, Seth do immediately after that meeting? You guys remember? Well, he goes. He goes to Alma. Yeah. I is there a chance that he just like wasn't really even paying attention and instead was thinking about I'm gonna leave town? Absolutely. Uh, so I think that, and I find that frustrating because this is the first thing that Seth has ignored in terms of his righteous indignation, and it happens to be incredibly vile violence against women. So the feminist, I'm like, fuck you, Seth. <laughs> mm. Unless he just wasn't listening. Which... I think that's a big part. Of it. I think he was half yeah. listening, and he was like, well, whatever, Charlie, this, whatever, and I don't care, I'm leaving. I think My there's probably, pregnant. there was that, and... It's, uh, there's yeah. a distance from the whole thing. I don't know. And it's, it's after the yeah. meeting with Alma when he deduces exactly what happened with Charlie and Wilcott. Yeah. He's a little, he's a little behind. I want to say he's got a lot in his mind right now. Yeah. 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 Or he just doesn't care that Charlie beat Wilcott and he's like, well, good for Charlie. I think there's a dash to that as well. Which is, a, which fits with Seth being a, an okay guy. Yeah, we don't we don't care about Wilcott. Does anyone like Wilcott? Quick poll. Show no. hands. Does anyone like this guy? No. I enjoyed no, watching him in this episode. Yes. I yeah. I I'm fascinated by Wilcott as a character, but uh he doesn't I don't know. Uh there's so little redeeming about him. Like he's got uh he's got like this little glimmer of humanity in him. That he's constantly smothering, which makes it hard for me to even like root for his, uh, his, uh, I guess, uh, redemption. Yeah. Like, I don't even care about him redeeming himself. I'm just like, oh. just, I wish Charlie had murdered him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But would that have made us like Charlie less? Mm, no. Fair. No. All right. Well, I... uh, makes, uh, make fucking Steve do it. Get I don't know. I, I don't to like murder Walcott. That guy's an like... asshole. I don't like murderers, but I also don't like vigilante justice either. So I yeah, like that's why that you get Steve. That's why you get Steve to do it. He, you know, he's the worst. He's all about vigilante justice. Are we ever going to see Steve again? <laughs> I hate that guy. <laughs> uh, we'll see. He's the worst. He might have moved out of town because he was so embarrassed about <laughs> fucking. Maybe. You know, he went to Louisiana so he could be a true detective. Oh, uh, yeah, that's probably what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I keep getting distracted whenever Hit Hickok comes into the 
into the conversation with Wolcott. You know, there's a piece of me that's like, he's reciting the thing and he's got the letter and I'm like, but you're the one that killed him. You know, I, <laughs> I there's this little piece of me that keeps, yep. keeps tearing at the irony of the situation and so forth of having the same actor who killed Hickok having his letter and talking about him like he didn't know him and stuff. That's another really wonderful theatrical move, actually, have, like having an actor play multiple roles. A, a good example that I can think of is uh, Peter Pan. Um, Papa Darling, uh, the actor uh, pe- playing their father, would o- often also play Captain Hook. Hmm. So you have, this, you, have this, uh, so you have this dynamic of that's like it's kind of almost purposeful. Uh, I don't have any proof that, that it was purposeful that this this scene would play that way because he also played Jack McCall. But there, it it uh, reminds me of that kind of uh, theatrical tradition that plays on the irony that the audience experiences being privy to the identities of uh, the performer. So that, that happens in the musical Grey Gardens. I don't know if you guys are oh, yeah. familiar with Grey Gardens, either the the documentary or the HBO movie or the musical, mm-hmm. but in the musical, a stage version, uh, the actress who plays old Edie in the first act, which is kind of like before the whole place goes to pot, she plays she plays the mother, and then the second act, it's in the future, and she's playing the daughter hmm. as an older as a middle aged woman. Yeah. So the same actress is playing both both of those roles, which is kind of great Interesting. I just watched that documentary again last week. It's hilarious that it came up. Have you seen the HBO movie? I did Jess- see with oh. Jessica Lange and Drew Barrymore. Oh, amazing! It was so well it was done, so great, and it so was great. sad. So sad. Is it true that Jack Kennedy gave you gonorrhea? This is my <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> lines from any any movie. Oh God, that's the worst. So good, and uh, it's a great uh, musical too. I haven't seen any of it. I'm going to have to track that down. The whole thing of having actors play multiple roles is a long standing tradition and it was rampant in Shakespeare because the original Shakespearean character companies were or company I should say Shakespeare's company had very few actors in it and a whole lot of roles so in Shakespearean plays you would have that written in that one actor would play these multiple roles and you can kind of tell some of them because certain characters will disappear for an act and then come back later and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that this is so Shakespearean, I could see them kind of saying, oh, well, yeah, we were doing that. But part of me feels like, no, not so much. Joni, unmoored by recent events, is offering herself to Jack, the bartender at the Bella Union. Sai pulls her away and tells her to move on. He proposes they reopen the Chesamee and wrestle the fucking future to the ground. Also, how about moving back to the Bella Union? She declines his protection. She was just looking to turn a trick. I'm glad she did that. Mm. Oh, so yeah. sad. Me too. I was glad she stood her ground. Um, but she's just like floundering here like she just yeah. doesn't know, know where to go or what to do yeah she's very messed up mm-hmm. but i was glad she rejected sigh yeah Wolcott. kill me or let me go there's no there's no way she could go back to sigh 
If she's not killed herself yet, then she's not going to go back to Sai, because Sai is worse than death. Yeah, fuck Sai. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> Wolcott wants to trade the Hickok letter to Charlie, the letter for whatever Miss Stubbs told him. Charlie would sooner defenestrate Wolcott than reveal the particulars of what Joni told him. He gave his word he would say nothing. So Wolcott gives him the letter. And Wolcott wants the door left open. That's such a lovely, wonderful moment that showcases how Charlie Utter is really very pure of heart. You know, he can't, mm -hmm. he can't allow like righteousness or, uh, or anger or revenge, uh, access the cornerstone of his nature, which is to be loving. You know, he can't, like, he feels so much affection and grief at having Bill's letter that it's like he reconnects with the truth of it and can't remain angry at him almost. And he, he does something so incredibly human. And I love the way Garrett Dillahunt acted the response of like open. Like he's so bewildered by that act of humanity, uh, uh, taken by the man who nearly beat him to death. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's such a stunning moment of, uh, of him, uh, yet again, not understanding people and having a bad, uh, like not being skilled at first impressions. It's just such a wonderful moment. Charlie Utter, what a class act. Mm -hmm. And yep. I will credit uh, Garrett Dillahunt and his commentary for this insight, but Charlie, he still hates Wilcott, so he can't say thank you for the letter, but he can say, do you want the door open or closed? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is his way of saying thank you. Yeah. No. And I like that little touch, too. Now, as far as um, anybody thinks that the whole idea of whether they're leaving the door open or whether they're closing the door is about that particular storyline. I think, uh, I think there's also, um, a kind of like, do, I think there, there's kind of a metaphor there of, do you want to be by yourself or do you want to be with people? Uh, almost of like, do you, you know, do you want to sit in isolation or do you want to have the door open, you know, in or out kind of thing. And so that's a, interesting, and I've tr spent a little bit of time trying to think about why Walcott wants the door open. Yeah. Uh, considering, you know, he told Cy to get out and uh, doesn't want people touching him or moving around with them, and he's not good at building friendships, and yet he wanted the door open. That's very interesting to me. I don't know if I have an answer for that. Do you guys have a theory on why he wants the door open? I have a uh -oh. theory. It's, it's It's different from yours. But in the previous episode, he tells Carrie he has to kill her because she's seen him. And I'm wondering if this is kind of like, um, well, everyone's seen me now. Everyone knows who I am, so might as well leave the fucking door open. Interesting. I like that. Mm. That's mm. fascinating approach. Mm. Yeah, it was so obvious that there's a metaphor there. And the question was, what is it? <laughs> It's a great poet's move. Good old David yeah. Milch and his poetry yeah. roots. Yes. Yeah. Right. And for our very last scene, it's Joni sitting alone in the dark in the Shazami, waiting, probably wondering, what's next? What do I do next? Where do I go from here? Showing the future her neck. She's waiting. She's waiting for him. Mm. It's uh, so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So seeing her sit there alone, 
alone, looking around, just waiting. Mm-hmm. With the door closed. Yeah. Ah. The shade's closed. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the episode. Predictions. Oh, fuck, I didn't write any of the predictions down. <laughs> no, wait, I did. It's on a separate, it's on my computer here, on my other computer. Yay. I just didn't copy it into the spreadsheet. How dare you? Because I, shut up. I uh, <laughs> edited this when I was in the car on the way back from Los Angeles. I noticed that nobody asked me how my trip was. That's fine. Time. I didn't I've, even know I've, you took a trip. I didn't, I didn't either. I went, to the Her- I went to the Hearst Castle. Nice. Oh, you Who's did that trip. That? Yeah, we'll talk. We could talk about it afterwards. Okay. Oh, okay. Let's yeah, fit. I love Sentiment. Where is it? Here we go. All right. So last time, Carol predicted that EB has been playing both sides against the middle so long that when the big deals go down, both sides exclude him from the deals. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think that was Al's real motivation for not wanting EB at the meetings. Like, I can't trust you. Mm-hmm. I would rather you not be a factor in. In this whole thing, you're gonna scheme in some way. He's too slimy. And then later on, he says, eh, it was for your own good." Yeah. <laughs> Matt says, "Cans of peaches are dispensed, and they have enough for every person in town except EB." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cans of peaches were dispensed, and they gave gave them not to everybody, but EB also did not get peaches. Yeah, I got two parts right. <laughs> <laughs> two points. Matt also suggested that they'll get that bank going, but he doesn't get to deposit because his money is too moist. <laughs> <laughs> it tears easily. Yeah. <laughs> Mel predicted that a gaggle of hoopals will force Steve to wash that horse's leg. <laughs> I wish. No, Steve. She also predicted that an ambulatory hat society walks into Deadwood and Evie is not allowed to join because he has a shitty secondhand hat. <laughs> I I also asked you to predict how many characters will speak while wearing hats. Matt said seven. (gasps) Carol said six. Mel said twenty-five. Oh, I way overdid it. (laughs) So Mel, you're way over. I think uh, the total was thirteen. 13 people, so we've got to give it to Matt. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's winning that miscellaneous prediction count. I was just hoping so. that ambulatory club would be a thing. Ambulators. <laughs> you're like, you're Mike Merrick. I really want to get this thing going. Yes. <laughs> it's just you and Merrick right now walking around. The, oh. Walking around. You're like, oh. I, when, I, when I agreed to join, I didn't know it was going to be the two of us. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) All right. We have some feedback. The first one is from Harold. Matt, why don't you read this one? I think I've brought this issue up before, but I don't understand why Al used Farnham as his go-between with Alma, considering that he knows that EB is so nosy and always trying to weasel his way into whatever scheme Al's involved in, when Al could have had someone deliver Alma a note instead. Had E.B. known what was going on, I don't think he would have gotten himself killed, but I'm sure he would have ruined Al's plan by trying to squeeze a bribe out of Alma and or Alice in return for his favorable testimony. Isn't Miss Isringhausen still staying at Farnham's hotel? Al is lucky she didn't overhear E.B. relaying Al's request for a meeting or observe him entering or leaving Alma's room. 
wasn't Al supposed to get back to her by the end of the day? She wasn't in this episode at all. Um, I was a little surprised that they brought up Al's attempt at murdering the five-head girl <laughs> or putting his boot on Trixie's neck. It is jarring to be reminded of early first season Al in the midst of season two. He seems like a very different person now. Mm. Agreed. Yes, but does it feel like a natural progression? Yeah, I think yeah, it so. Does. You know, life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. In his penis. They almost died. <laughs> yeah. Because I listened to a podcast where they they just review like different things. They don't – they're not like us. They're not – they're not insane people. They just talked about Deadwood for one podcast. And uh, one of the ladies on the podcast, she's like, yeah, I didn't like it because – and this is her main reason. Al just changed. Like, what? And it didn't what? seem like realistic. What? Disagree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It seems like enough is happening. And, and also there's jumps in time, which maybe if you're not paying close enough attention, you don't realize that – Basically, a year has passed between seasons one and two that mm-hmm. – and, and the camp is growing up so fast that Al's, Al's changing with it very fast. Yeah. Um, I like the unspoken interaction between the five-head girl and Alma when Al entered the room and how Alma especially told her – essentially told her, no, you don't have to leave. I'm going to have an actual conversation with this man instead of the kind of conversation you thought I was going to have. You know, the kind of conversation that causes plaster to rain down on people I was gonna mention who are trying that. to eat their liver. <laughs> I was yeah. going to mention that, that it was yeah. like Sophia wanted to leave and it was basically like, no, honey, we're not going to have sex. We're just going <laughs> to talk. <laughs> right. We're not, we're not going to shake the foundation. Yes. So we all caught that, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought Sophia yeah. was frightened. And that's no, what I thought, too. No, no. I, th- I just thought I thought that she thought that that's what happened mm-hmm. when Anne came into Alma's room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too. Oh, yeah. someone needs to sit that girl down and have a talk. <laughs> uh, I think Al's plan is quite devious, even though I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't press more insistently for that 50000 as a firm precondition as opposed to suggesting she give it to him as a nice gesture. If he's correct and Alice is a Pinkerton, then feeding her to woo's pigs will just bring more Pinkertons into his life. But obtaining documentation that they are trying to buy uh, perjured testimony will only remove the threat, but could also be used to blackmail their agency in the future. Will not only remove the threat, but could also be used to blackmail their agency in the future. I think that they're doing a great job of building up the looming threat of George Hurst, even without setting foot in the camp. His reputation is affecting virtually everyone's actions. Again, this 9 out of 10 magically appearing and very convenient for future episodes, I am sure. Walkways. <laughs> George isn't a scary name. No, it's not. George is a cigarette smoking man on Intro to X. <laughs> yeah. In their headcanon. All right. Next one is from Jonathan. Mel, I'm going to have you read this one. Okay. No time for a voicemail today. Here are a few thoughts in no particular order. One, Ricky J watch. No Ricky J this episode. We are considering suspending this watch as there is no credible reason to believe that Eddie is not dead. Personally, I believe that in the break between episodes, Eddie began to funnel stolen money to Joni. Eddie was caught, but it took Sai too long to figure out where the money went. 
I think it's likely that Eddie is bacon. <laughs> I like that Jonathan is like conferring with other people. Like, should we suspend the watch? Yes. You've decided to suspend Ricky J watch. <laughs> you yes. mean you did, Jonathan. There's no it's, one else. It's very enjoyable. You and the people in your head. Yes. Aw. He has conversations about Deadwood with the people in his head. That's adorable. <laughs> Two, speaking of Joni and Sai, what are we to make of Sai's offer to Joni? I think that Sai has real feelings for her and would take her back in an instant. It's just that Sai has a need to absolutely control everything he loves, and that's the source of most of his hateful behavior. And so, with this revelation, shall we now f- start to feel for Sai? No, Sai's the worst. Fuck Sai. <laughs> <laughs> Three, Charlie was a badass in this episode, in the least helpful way. (laughs) Uh, Four, yes. Four, Seth and Alma frustrate me. I feel like the question would, uh, sorry. I feel like the question, would it be easier for you if I left camp, is a simple one. And Alma's response, please do not ask me to make that decision for you, is a dodge. I do suppose, however, that Alma's preamble, if you think the decent concern for others that was our purpose in separating dictates now uprooting your family, can be taken as a roundabout way of her stating her opinion. Of course, I'm not, re- I'm really not a Salma shipper, so Boo. I've always found the interactions <laughs> between those two frustrating. <sighs> boo, Jonathan, boo! Salma forever. Do you, you guys think that was a dodge, like he said? No. no. She's not responsible. No. no. That's, that's she, not her job. Yeah. She's she's just basically trying to tell him, you know, get your act together and make the tough choices. Mm-hmm. Don't lay it on other people. Don't mm-hmm. expect other people to give you an out. Mm-hmm. Probably made her make, like, restaurant reservations and she had to pick the restaurant. And then when they got there, he complained about the restaurant and like, well you pick it next time <laughs> we make all the decisions it's a running thing between the two of them um but i mean did she i can't remember now if she actually told him her, her feelings about his proposition one way or the other you mean I him think leaving? she thinks she thinks the idea is ridiculous like you're gonna like uproot your family because of this we already broke up you know it's like this is this is already over it's like you're not, you're not asking about whether I'm comfortable because I've already, I gave you the watch back. It's over. So she's, she's okay with everything. Whereas he's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's more him, I guess. Yeah. He's but yeah, for- she never really outright said her feelings about it one way or the other. And if she would have no. said, I don't care. Like, I wonder what he would have said. Yeah. He's a wiener. He's a wiener. <laughs> Seth's a wiener. Yeah. He he wants a way out. He wants somebody else to tell him, you know, to make it okay for him to to run away. What did you guys think though, by the way, when he said it it becomes you? Fuck you, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. What a <laughs> shitty thing to say. It's in reference to her pregnancy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The pregnant glow. Okay. It's like, yeah. ugh, what a pro life thing to say. <laughs> 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 it becomes you. It did, it didn't bother me. I thought it was he was just you know. It yeah, it didn't bother me either because I feeling she, she wanted to keep the baby, and it's sort of like his way of saying that I'm I'm happy you've 
you've reached this decision and I'm happy for you that you've made up your mind kind of. Yeah. Yeah. He, also was, he also was, you know, complimenting her on her looks and he still, you know, was, he still likes her, you know, he still. Has exactly. Yeah. It was his way of, of being affectionate just, towards yeah, her. It's just circumstances prevent them being together. So yeah. He could have said, like, uh, you look fucking hot since I knocked you up, but I tried to say it in a slightly nicer way. I don't think people would say it like that back then. Yeah, no, that wasn't really the vernacular. No, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. This is his phrasing. Yes, yes. Um, phrasing. Phrasing. <laughs> Five, speaking of Alma, she gets a visit from Al. Considering how much goodwill Al has built up over the course of the last season and a half, it was disconcerting to watch this scene and realize that Alma's disgust for Al is well-founded. He is the man that ordered her husband killed and menaced the child that is now her ward. In spite of the fact that the audience now understands more of what motivates Al, there is no reason to believe that Alma does or would care if she did. Their uneasy alliance is fascinating. Yes. Mm. Six. But it was good to see Al up and around, running meetings, doing business, uh, talking to a severed head in a box. <laughs> Guys, I'm not sure Al is really okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one with voices in your head, uh, Jonathan <laughs> telling you. <laughs> Jonathan just wants to hang out with Al, guys, because, you know, kindred spirits. <laughs> I'll hang out with Al. <laughs> Seven. I thoroughly do not understand the character of Wolfram. I mean, Wolcott. <laughs> But that letter from Bill to his wife has served as quite the interesting object. In and of itself, it's not very interesting, but as an object, it has now served to set up several plot points and meetings between characters. I had many more thoughts, but no time to get to them all, so until next time, please don't murder me. Done and done, Jonathan! <laughs> <laughs> You've bought yourself another week or two. You have! Good on you. And our last feedback is from Will. It's audio feedback. Hey, guys. Will. It's Will. <laughs> so I just finished watching EB was left out. And EB being left out, I guess, creates for some funny moments. But for the most part, you know, when EB's by himself especially, I just kind of ignore him. You know, only when he's getting insulted by, like, Al or Alma Garrett do I really pay attention to what's going on with EB. So I did like Al's pep talk with Merrick at the beginning. Um, and he also kind of gave Trixie a good talking to and got her back out there learning numbers. So I like how he's helping people out, even though, you know, we do see some of him trying to do things that benefit himself. And when Joni told her secret to Charlie, didn't you just know he was going to go straight and do something about it? So... Yeah, she did that on purpose, her little secret. And, but I do love that Charlie beat the shit out of Wolcott. Maybe maybe he was. I don't know. Maybe he was allowed himself to get beat up. Cause he, does he feel guilty about it? Maybe we talked about that last episode. Um, I did think that he was just going to get up and beat the shit out of Charlie during the fight. Or if he didn't, then you know, when he met him again later on. So, you know, a while back I went to this meeting of, it's not something that I'm interested in, just kind of to see what it was like for people who want to get, who want a rough house in the bath, in the, 
bedroom. <laughs> so I compare this episode to when you want to get a little rough in the bedroom, but it doesn't go the way that you <laughs> plan, and it's a little weird. So I will talk to you guys later. Tell Matt I said no hard feelings. Bye. Which Matt? For what? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Which who's he talking about? What's he talking about? <laughs> hmm. He, hmm. The both of you. He wronged you somehow, and he, you. He did. Of, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Will, don't try any rough stuff in the bath. You could drown. <laughs> 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 Oh, bad idea. Well, thank you for the feedback, Harold, Will, and Jonathan. Yeah, and, and the people feedback. in Jonathan's head. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Oh, yes. yes. Woo! I need to kill a bunch of people now. <laughs> oh, my. Not again. These yeah. people always make my life, like, so busy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send out some emails. Make sure everyone's... I'll do it, like, passive-aggressively. Like, I'm just worried about you. We haven't heard from you in a while. Are you doing okay? <laughs> <laughs> Concern trolling. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. So let's uh, let's get to episode ratings. As our guest, Stephanie, you may go first. Fucking 10 out of 10, baby. Number 10 saloon out of 10. All right. Love this episode. It's my number one episode. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I roll. Great. Number one up. Carol, how about you? I like the episode. I I don't know what my favorite episode is at this point. I'm I'm not big on favorites anyway. But um I liked it a lot. I liked the fact that all the way through I was concerned about Charlie's safety and concerned about Joni's safety. They they managed to have that tension all the way through. I enjoyed what was going on with Al. Um I thought he did a great job with keeping it believable that he was just not a hundred percent to say the least. Um, yeah, I liked, I liked pretty much the whole thing, but I'm going to go with nine out of 10 avoided murders. Seemed like we avoided a lot of murders in this episode. Mm. Okay. And for the record, your favorite episode so far, at least according to the ratings was the season one finale. Oh, okay. To give a 9.5. Okay. Yeah. Matt. Uh, I like this one a lot. I had lots of smiles <laughs> watching this episode. There's lots of cute little scenes or heartwarming scenes or whatever. Um, I really enjoyed Al being a life coach. And I, I'll give it 9 out of 10 pearls of advice. <laughs> All right. Mel. Yes, I enjoy this show so much more when uh, it's... It has like more character moments, which this episode did, and uh, I like the blend of like serious versus comedic moments as well. So that always kind of does it for me. So I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten uh, cups of black fucking Darjeeling tea. God damn it! Stole my rating. You <laughs> <laughs> say Darjeeling, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, I would have pronounced it incorrectly. <laughs> Darjeeling. Darjeeling. See, I can say words. She saved <laughs> no, I just embarrassed him, though. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> yeah, this was a great one. I enjoyed Wilcott getting beat in the street. The 
Alma Al meeting, finally seeing those two characters, the Trixie, Trixie's uh, stuff with Seth and Seth's reaction, great Timothy Oliphant face acting, <laughs> and the friendship between Joni and Charlie, and just there's just a lot of great stuff. I guess the only thing I didn't like is uh, Khan and Leon. They could they're funny, but they're also they're also so they're also so racist. Yes. <laughs> it's a Oops. little much sometimes. Uh, so I'll give this one a nine out of ten ethnic mouth instruments. <laughs> Very nice. That you can pluck and lose teeth while plucking. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, now this is the big question, Stephanie. Who is your character of the episode? My character of the episode is Al Swearingen, hands down. He dominated this episode for me. Uh yeah, so he's he's probably my number one. Again, you know, the pearls of wisdom from the first moment of this episode. He's uh, dragged himself around and just spit hot fire this whole episode. Cool. I love Al in this episode. Carol. Um, I was trying to think of anybody but Al because yeah, I just mm-hmm. felt like you could say that about you know, so many episodes, though, you know, he wasn't in the first bunch of episodes of the season anyway. So um, I'm going to go with Al. Same Woo! reason. He was everywhere, you know, in it. And he was the thread that kind of bound everything together. All right. I'm high-fiving you from California right now. Okay. All right. <laughs> coast to coast. Here we go. Yeah, he's not even in the uh, the top five of our characters for this season. Just so you know. That's all I'll say. I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to influence uh, future character nominations. Well, he was sick. You just for the did. Whole first thing. <laughs> <laughs> you just Charlie uttered this, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't tell you who was number one. <laughs> who do you think? Who do you think is number one? I won't say if you're right or, right or wrong. I have no idea. Uh, Alma. No. Um... Oh, I don't know. Trixie. Who knows? All right. <laughs> Matt, who's your character? Uh, I'll say Charlie for giving that beating to Olcott. That was very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> and Mel? I'm going to say L for being so fucking suave. <laughs> so suave! <laughs> <laughs> Well, the mats are sticking together because I'm also picking Charlie. You guys aren't supposed to agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed uh, Wilcott being beaten in the street. And I'm not a fan of uh, violence as a rule, but I can make an exception for Francis Wilcott since he uh, split the throats of three girls. Mm. And I liked Charlie comforting Joni, just being a friend for her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, his yeah. kind of hesitation, like, I don't want her to think I'm taking advantage of her, but I really want to comfort her. And and Jane, as well, at the end, he's he's taking care of his friends. Right. He's a stand-up guy. Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> Raveling yeah. down the road and back again. <laughs> true. Charlie, Charlie was, was uh, this was a really good episode. For and if you threw a party. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, great. All right. Uh, that's a great show, Golden Girls. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> um, 
Guest rights say that Stephanie gets the first quote. Every frock is saying a victory, Chief. Hmm. That's my quote. Cool. Not one of mine. It wasn't even on my list. It's a great one, and it's just it's uh, a good one. It's a beautiful moment too, because he's been weaning all day, and then he failed, at, and it's just such a wonderful, uh, very Al turn of phrase of just like, eh, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumb- crumbles, you know. Yep. It's a and it's a very um, it's again it's a very cheeky thing to say. So it, it mm-hmm. it's sort of like it turns the loss into a strange victory of sorts, and I find myself saying that sometimes every fracas ain't a victory that's a good that'd be a good bumper sticker actually sure would put it on a shirt be hot carol carol you have a quote well most of mine you pretty much said during the oh boy that's not true i'd go out of my way not to actually quote things oh really here here's i often i often re i often take what they say and then they and reword them (laughs) Here's here's my here's my favorite and think about how much it is is said already. Why E B? Because being present at that meeting and made as you are, blackmail would have proved irresistible and pursuing it would have gotten you murdered. Uh thank you then. And am I still mayor? For all of me in perpetuity. Well said. You stole my quote too, Matt. <laughs> no. Go to hell. Stop walking. <laughs> what's, what's your quote? Why does oh stop walking? <laughs> Mel, I hope you. Ha- I hope I didn't steal your quote too. I'm just trying to find my quote. <laughs> Control F the word. I know I didn't write the word down. I'm stupid. <laughs> what did you write down? I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying to make sense of my notes. Here, I I'll give you one that I thought was good. Okay, yeah, that's that was the that was actually that my quote. It? Yeah, okay. that was. <laughs> Okay, from from Sai. I'd go with the strangeness, boys. Take it head on. Turn it to your fucking advantage. Uh, among humans, for grip, the China woman's snatch has no peer. In all of nature, the python is its only rival, though few have lived to tell the tale. We are dwarfs in the company of a giant. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm intrigued. Uh. Mine is from Al. She's some fucky bee. <laughs> Beautiful. That guy. Al, you're a bad boy. All right, now it's a free for all. <laughs> I just gave my Mel my other one. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that you know, uh you didn't say it so that someone could have it and they didn't. Tread lightly who lives in hope of pussy. <laughs> classic Trixie. That is a classic. <laughs> classic Trixie. Somebody just posted a t-shirt with this on it in the Facebook group. Pain or damage don't end the world or despair or fucking beatings. The world ends when you're dead. Until then, you got more punishment in store. Stand it like a man and give some back. Hmm. Woo! Yeah. You should, like, have, uh, like, a web series of inspirational monologues. Mm-hmm. Inspirational quotes from Al Swearingen. I also had the... Is the Jew harping? Are you making a pun? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I just noticed this quote. I don't remember hearing it in the episode, but Jewel kind of like uh, oh, yeah. got back at Al. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. mm-hmm. That's yeah. right, yeah. 
God, he's always dragging that fucking leg. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Oh, Jules. I love it. I don't remember her saying this at all, though, but Mm. Um, I've got one. Another another good piece of advice from Mr. Good Advice. Do not fucking fault them, Trixie, for your own fucking fears of tumbling into something new. Yes. Mm. I love that. It's a wonderful callback, too, to that, you know, monologue he related in the first season after she tried to croak herself. You know, he's like, oh, change is, you know, it's coming. Nothing to be afraid of. So it's, you know, he's calling back to that moment. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah, move on. Adjust. Move at the times. I'm reading um, Al's soliloquy to the soliloquy to a head in a box. And uh, it is, it's so, I mean, just the way it's written, it's like, it's just got every little piece of Shakespearean. um, If somebody were writing a Shakespeare monologue as a joke or something, they would put each one of these things in it. It's just (laughs) amazing. Uh, Right down to the... um, at the end, he says, I'd seek audience with Utter, verify my thinking. He earns his bread shipping packages, and as the dimwit nobility that made him intercede may now make him reticent, you, chief, will be my prop employ whilst I seek to draw him out. So, that is like right out of Shakespeare's plays. It's so eloquent. The what way everything is phrased is very typical of of Shakespeare's phraseology. It's just, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's funny to read while at the same time being, you know, quite lovely writing, but it's almost like a joke within a, within a lovely piece of writing. It's, it, it, I like the layers. (laughs) Right. It also evokes for me uh, a lot of, political speeches of the 19th century. I've been, you know, doing some research in general. And it's like, if you read, uh, like speeches written by, uh, William Henry Seward, for instance, there's a lot of that in there. And these, these guys would go stumping and would recite three hour, two, three hour, four hour speeches that were like that, that just had so much, um, that so much poetry in it, uh, which was another reason that Abe Lincoln was so different because he didn't really go for that loftiness and, you know, rail splitter. Mm. But it very much uh, harkens to that style of stumping, of, of speech making uh, in 19th century politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and their literature at the time, a lot of it loved to have the, the um, they were just getting out of that very, very flowery way of writing and you know twain would would uh really pull it pull it the other direction but mm-hmm. uh yeah like when you get into somebody earlier like james fenimore cooper Ugh. Um, <laughs> i hate that bastard have have you ever read twain's uh comments on james fenimore cooper oh yeah it's the best it is in the whole world. I, I hate. Uh, it's like I've 
I like read through his stuff, especially for my re- for my research right now, and was just like, oh, maybe this character in my book likes James Fenimore Cooper, and I was like, ugh, I can't write anyone that likes James Fenimore Cooper. My mom always I would loved hate- James ugh. Fenimore Cooper. If that helps any, I guess that does help. I just it just frustrates <laughs> me so much his style and his ladies and the like weird like justifiable racist ugh James Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> What, I I read Twain's thing and I was just about James Fenimore Cooper and I was in hysterics. I remember I was on a bus commuting into New York at the time and I was in hysterics on the bus. People thought I was crazy. Yeah. But, and then I took it to my mom and I was like, this is why I don't like Cooper. So, but, uh, yeah, he's so right. So right. Yeah. Well, I have two more quotes. Do it. This one's E.B. and Alma. Penny, for your thoughts, I'm glad to be leaving your company. Oh, oh yeah, I love that one. <laughs> I was just uh, watching it, and when that moment happened, my uh, Mike, my roommate Mike, whom you guys know from Twin Peaks Fest, he just started busting up in the other room when that <laughs> when that quote happened, and we were like, yeah, Alma, you're a G. Yeah. Alma's great. She's... I almost wrote that one down. I'm glad somebody said it, because I forgot to write it down. I got distracted. And then my other one is from Charlie. He says... I'm your friend. Don't ever walk past me. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I missed that part where he said, I'm your friend. I just heard that. Don't ever walk past me. I was like, that's kind of aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. Well, our next, our next episode is episode 20 childish things. <laughs> okay. All right. So what's your prediction, Mel? Yeah, really Mel. You must have one. Yeah. What? I don't know. I don't know what this could mean. It could mean all kinds of things. I well, think we're thinking a lock-in at the gym on the Alpine board games. Aww. <laughs> the jam party It's going to be like Muppet Babies, but Deadwood Babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mm. Childish things. Um... What's that quote about um, a man putting away childish things? Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Cy Tolliver accused Charlie Utter of being childish this, this episode. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's going to be like the consequences of... I don't know. <laughs> what? Oh, I just... I just what? I'm just imagining everybody in the camp, like all the grizzled miners, they're all playing with a cup and ball. Aww! Yeah. I think... Oh. I think I think someone's gonna come in town and just pass pass around toys, and then everybody's gonna secretly go away, like secretly go off in the forest and start playing with things. Like they're all gonna st- <laughs> they're all gonna start like I don't know, playing all these games, these old timey games. Seth has an like, antique doll collection, and somebody oh! somebody finds out, and they because he's the sheriff, they're like. I'm sorry, you gotta get rid of these dolls. Nobody's gonna expect you a sheriff. And then he tries to sell them off to Alma. Yeah. So that Sophia can play with them instead. And he he tries to pass it off as that's why he had them in the first place. (laughs) For Sophia and their future child. I got them for Sophia. I just, I forgot to give them to her. And I built a room like a shrine for them, but... What grown man has a room full of dolls? You know what? I worked with a girl whose uh, who's, uh, boyfriend collected dolls. I'm not kidding you. She showed me that pictures. That is weird. That's cool. She showed, she showed me pictures. 
I'm into it. Yeah, it was interesting. Nothing's too weird for me, man. I yeah. know people who LARP. Oh, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> a thing now. <laughs> the thing is cool. A family friend of ours, she collected anything that had to do with clowns. Oh, oh. that's creepy. Your cousin. Clown pillows, that. clown statues. Yeah, Matt's cousin has like a cabinet full of clowns. It's wrong. And I don't think she did it ironically. No, no, she doesn't either. And she even has a clown tattoo. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't right. I just need to point out that in California, it's 420 right now. FYI, everyone. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, with this show, it could just be have to do with Sophia and whatever Seth's kid is, you know, playing at different instances throughout the the show but i would normally say um that it has to do with um people having to take responsibility and um act like grown-ups okay i think we're finally going to see the the friendship start to blossom between the two kids the only two kids in town stilts <laughs> craze it's the stilts craze yeah <laughs> Kids love mud. Yeah. Stephanie. Yes. Now is the opportunity for you to tell us about your podcast. Yes, podcast. And, and your other projects, too. Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess I still have a podcast. We're getting ready to move, so I'm not sure when episodes are going to be coming out. But it's called EdCast. If you want to know more about it, you can go to stephanieed.com or check me out on Twitter at RangerBagel. And... <laughs> uh, it's a, it's sort of an amoeba of a concept where it's just sort of uh, talking about a lot of different things. I'm pretty lucky that I know uh, uh, some really cool uh, intellectual people. So we've uh, I did two episodes on Miley Cyrus with a friend of mine who's uh, an incredibly talented, intelligent transnational feminist. So we talked about Miley Cyrus from a feminist and uh, like intersectional racial perspective those came out really great we talked about uh twin peaks festival mike my roommate and i who we went to twin peaks fest we talked about that and we talked about the blood moon supermoon with a like a like a medieval scholar and an astronomer friend of mine and uh yeah so we kind of talk about a lot of different stuff at some point we'll probably do a deadwood edcast but for right now i don't really know what's happening since we're going to be kind of in between places and i can not set up fort studio and make episodes happen but that's all right in any case uh i'm also as i mentioned writing a novel called ride below snakes that takes place in a 1876 1877 and it's about uh sally whitman she's 12 years old she has two older sisters and they live in southern montana the montana territory and something really really terrible happens and their mother is killed and their house is burned down and they have to move to san francisco to live with their uncle but through some turn of events and some odd decisions they decide to not take the train and instead travel on horseback. So they go over the mountains, and along the way they encounter some interesting people, including a gunslinging attorney and a married couple that hail from Japan and are of the samurai class. So huh? it, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting piece, and uh, it's coming to fruition now pretty well. I'm excited about it. I'm not sure when it's going to come out, 2016, 2017. In any case, uh, you can also... Uh, Go to my website to see my first novel, um, 
which is The Clear Case. It's a private detective mystery that's part of a series that I hope to continue. And, uh, yeah, you can get it on Amazon for 10 bucks or 4 bucks if you want the ebook. So, The Clear Case, stephanie.com, at Ranger Bagel on Twitter. Thanks, you guys. And I really appreciate in advance that you mentioned Hooplecast in the uh, Ride Below Snakes uh, at the end. Thanks in advance for doing that. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I like to shout out because that's like, that's uh, one of the things that I really try to maintain in my life is really try to make things intersectional, make my life intersectional. So whenever I get to participate in cool things and meet really cool people, I want to share it with the world. So thanks for having me on this program, you guys. Cool. Oh, thank I'm, you. I'm going to be asking a, a new question of all of our guests, which is if you were to do a TV-related podcast, what television show would you want to talk about? TV-related podcast, what show would I want to talk about? Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so cute. Um, I'm a Star Trek person, so it would be fun to talk about Star Trek. Oh, which, uh, which one? <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe original series and Next Generation together, but it would probably come, like, I would like to talk about it from, like, a feminist perspective, a, like, transnational kind of feminist perspective. That would well, be really who you, fun. Who do you think is the most interesting um, female character in the Star Trek franchise? In the Star Trek franchise, I think the most interesting female character is Deanna Troy. Uh, really? Yes. Oh, I, I would not have said Deanna Troy. I think she's incredibly fascinating being um, mixed race right. in a sense and being an empath I find very fascinating. And uh, one reason that she's a, an especially interesting character is how she also relates to other people in the crew. Like how she is good friends with Data when he doesn't feel. So mm-hmm. I think that Troy is really fascinating. And then she's closely followed by Uhura because she was one of my um, first teen dreams, my first teenage crushes, as I discussed in one of my EdCast episodes about teen heartthrobs. I'm going to say, for me, the most fascinating female character is Kira Norris from Deep Space Nine. Yeah. She lived under the Cardassian occupation, and then after Bajor was uh, liberated, she ha- now has to work with Cardassians yeah. and live with them and work under f- the Federation and, like, with them and that sort of just the way that she's pulled in different directions and then has to go up against like Bajorans who are sort of undermining what she's doing on the station, but she's sympathetic to them. Lot, you know, the politics of that, I find her just a fascinating character. Yeah. Also a really great character. Oh, uh, and related to that, uh, Ro, Ro Laren, Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. a great character. Yeah. The whole Bajoran, dynamic and, and the maquis thing is interesting uh very cool um hope you do that sometime yeah it'd be fun so yeah star trek i can't think if there's another show maybe lost girl when that show ends i'd like to do a lost girl podcast that would be fun i love Bo. and we got an answer from stephanie about this question she says matt you asked me if there were any series left i would want to do a podcast I thought about it today. Someone needs to do The Sopranos, The Wire, My So-Called Life, and Gilmore Girls. Not me, but someone. <laughs> I might be doing My So-Called Life with my friend Angel, actually. We may be doing kind of like an intro cast style where we do two episodes, like two episodes of podcast episodes. So I may make be making that happen. Oh, that'd be that'd cool. That'd be cool. Yeah, I, that'd be great. I I watched that when it was first on. I haven't watched it since. It was, I remember it being a good show. There's a Facebook group for intro casts, and if you were to follow this format, I'm sure you'd get a lot of support and 
uh, an, like an immediate audience mm-hmm. for that. Tight. Because we're we're a, a tight community, all in this sort of uh, podcast format. Your podcast sounds really interesting. I'm going to be definitely checking it out. Um, Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate absolutely. that. Absolutely. I hope I get to do more soon. I'm going to be living with my friend Angel for a little bit, so hopefully we can really throw down on that, my so-called life. She was like, I wanted to be different from EdCast, and I'm like, I don't want to spend more money on SoundCloud, so this is under the umbrella of EdCast. <laughs> oh, so it wouldn't be its own feed? Nah, probably it would be like a subsidiary of this one podcast because I'm lazy. Yeah. Well, and, uh, well, and Emily, she- Emily did it that way for quite a long time with her, uh, her Buffy of, podcast. Yeah, yeah Beth Bates Motel, and then Sue watches Buffy being a a, a secondary podcast on the same feed. If you uh, do end up making it a separate podcast, can I suggest a title? Yes. Like you know. Good idea. I like it. I'll tell Angel. Well, we'll see you next time for episode 20, Childish Things. All right. There may or may not be board games and dolls. (laughs) And as usual, you can find us at hooplecast.com or on Facebook or Twitter. Search for Hooplecast. Go on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. But until then, goodbye. Fuck you. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. you. (laughs) Fuck you. Yeah.
Who's left to suffer long about you? Does your soul cast about like an old paper bag? Past empty lots and early grass. was a decent length <laughs> was, uh, not bad not bad we did good it was in four hours are you nice. gonna tell us about your trip yes please i want to hear all about the hearse castle yeah hearse castle um it probably wouldn't make sense to say that i was both impressed and underwhelmed at the same time oh wow really yeah because it's amazing to look at when you see it from down below it's this huge building on the on the hill and you go up to it um, in it's like a it doesn't it doesn't go straight up the mountain it it's like a winding road and the architect wanted wanted you to kind of like go in and out of the trees and sort of catch glimpses of the castle as you approached like you, you sort of teasing you as you went up up the route and you would pass it was also one of the largest private zoos at the time Her, William Randolph Hearst had like all these. Uh, animals living on his property and in ca- cages, like uh, he had brown bears or something. I don't know. He had Whoa. he had bears and and he had uh, zebras and I think some zebras still exist on the property to this day. Huh. And just it was this sort of it wasn't a, a fun experience going up to the castle and seeing it. Unfortunately, you didn't get to go in all the rooms. Uh, I think let me see how many rooms there are. I want to say yeah, they've made the tours smaller and smaller as the years go on. Unfortunately. I guess because there's just more and more people. Yeah, and you know, money is tight all over. So I mean, it took it took three and a half to four hours to see the whole thing. Like it's it's your whole afternoon or your whole morning. I mean, did each, you, there were we? I took three tours. I, I was going to say, the, uh, how many tours did you take? Yeah, I took the Grand Rooms tour. The and the Grand Rooms tour. I'm on the website right now. Show will take you to. Assembly room, refractory, billiard room, theater, gardens room, Neptune pool, and Roman pool. Well, you see the pools in the garden on your own, but it basically takes you to like a living space and then a dining room and then the billiard room and then the theater where you get to uh, watch like a black and white footage of people who touring like at the castle, like way back when, like you see Charlie Chaplin and stuff. And it's kind of cool. You get to watch something in his actual movie theater. Hmm. And that was 45 minutes. And then the upstairs suite tour is 45 minutes, and that takes you to the library, the Gothic suite, uh, Hearst bedroom, and you can see the bathrooms and kind of like walk-in closets and things all upstairs. And that was neat. And then the 45-minute cottages and kitchens tour, which takes you to the wine cellar and the various – he's got like – 
the, he's got the main castle, which is called the big house. And then he has three other buildings, one that faces the mountains, one that faces the sunset, and one that face, faces the water. Because you can see the ocean from up top. Uh, Casa del Monte, Casa del Mar. So you get, you get to go in two of these cottages and then go to the kitchens. And then on your own, you pass by the tennis court and the indoor swimming pool, which is f- beautiful. It's like the indoor pool is gorgeous and probably my favorite. Yeah, the indoor pool is amazing. And then you can see the outdoor pool on your own, which is the Neptune pool, but that's empty, actually. They're doing a restoration on it. It was leaking, like, in an insane amount of water because of, of just how it was made, and, like, yeah, it was leaking a ton of water, so they've drained it, and they're going to repair it, but it's oh. going to take, like, years. Mm. Oh. Okay, that's too bad, because that is a beautiful pool. The only problem with it is that, you know, I always wanted to just go into it. Every time oh, it yeah. It looked, I mean, it was like, crystal, I've seen pictures of it. It's like yeah. crystal blue water. It looks like so inviting. And yeah. And it's, I felt that way about the indoor pool, too. Yeah. I could just but the outdoor right one, it's, it's hot. You've got the sun on you. And it's like, there's this beautiful pool sitting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they, apparently the Hearst family, like the descendants, still come to the property and swim in the indoor pool on mm-hmm. occasion. If you want to check so out more cool Hearst stuff, you should come to the uh, UC Berkeley campus, my alma mater. They have the Hearst Mining Building, which is gorgeous. The Hearst Women's Gym. There's a pool up top. You can break into it. Sometimes take finals there. I took finals in there. It's very cool looking. His wife uh, gave a lot of money to the university. So the, there's 56 bedrooms, 61 bathrooms, 19 sitting rooms. Nice. So 136 rooms, but we only went in like a dozen of them. So you don't really get a sense of just how big it is when you're only seeing such a small fraction of the property. So that's why I say it's both impressive and underwhelming. <laughs> is it expensive, too, to tour it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, yeah, it is. is. Yeah, It is, but I mean, it's like kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I wouldn't. I wouldn't need to go back. Yeah, I don't think. But um, yeah, the only reason I went there twice was because I went there by myself and then like, I don't know, 15 years later, I took my son there. Yeah. It's also a museum in the fa- in the sense that they have artifacts that he's purchased that some they said were like 2,000 or 3,000 years old. And they're just sitting on tables. What? Yeah. Like there's a, there's a, there's a statue from, came from Egypt that Hearst bought at auction or something. And that's 3,000 years old. And it's just sitting like right there. What? Also, just the walls and the, I mean, he had all kinds of stuff imported from Europe and like rooms, you know, the walls of rooms and the ceilings of, you know, from monasteries and from castles and, and all these different places. And then he would have it like build a room in order to fit this stuff into it and have artisans complete things that matched it to make it one whole room. You know, there'd be just the ceiling and he'd have them, create something modern that looked exactly like it to go on the walls. Weird dude. He was buying stuff. Well, he was buying stuff in 1919, I guess, is yeah. when they started building. He was, all the Charlie Chaplin films and all of that stuff that you saw in the black and white, that was all during the 20s and 30s. Ah, uh, yes. Invitations to Hearst Castle, highly coveted during its heyday in the 1920s and 1930s. So, Europe's bankrupt after the First World War. They're selling all their art artifacts and art at auction, and Hearst just bought him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then he never finished this ridiculous house. 
Hmm. He kept revising it and building onto it. Never happy with his uh, product, I guess. I don't think the point was to ever finish it. The point was to make a place to display all the cool stuff he was able to buy. And mm-hmm. he was he kept buying stuff, so he had to keep, you know, building and rebuilding and, and all of that. Uh, it was a fantastic day, and it was neat to finally go there because I've wanted to go there for many years. Now, you said you and were down in... You were in Los Angeles? Uh, not down in Los Angeles. You were well, passed Los through Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Just, just drove right through it. Have you- and then uh, stayed in Morrow Bay for the first night. Okay. And, uh, then um, drove... After the Hearst Castle, my family and I, we drove up Pacific One Highway mm-hmm. on the water, uh, you know, overlooking mm-hmm. the ocean, and uh, yeah. drove up to 17 Mile Drive. Yep. Uh, there. Through Pebble Beach, my father wanted to see all the golf courses because he watches <laughs> golf on TV, and he wanted to see Pebble Beach and all this other stuff. So, and then we ended up having dinner in Pacific Grove, which is a really nice town, and it had a really great dinner. Nice. And a very quaint restaurant that was inside a former house. Just lots of awesome houses up there. Nice. Sounds like a nice trip. So you just went one direction, or you came back? Oh, we well, we obviously we came back. <laughs> um, <laughs> after that, um, on Sunday, drove up north to San Jose because my mother has never seen the Winchester Mystery House. Oh yeah, I, ha- never, I have. I'd never even heard of that until recently. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, we used to watch this show on the weekends called America's Castles, and that's where I first heard about this place, where this woman. Uh, like her family owned the Winchester Rifle Company, or her husband did. She married into the Winchester family, and she f- was haunted by the ghosts of everyone who was killed by a Winchester rifle. <laughs> so she went to <laughs> yeah. So she goes to a psychic, and the psychic tells her that she'll be free of their torment if she keeps building onto a house and never stops. Oh, I've heard of that actually. Yeah. So she starts building onto this house, and construction continues until her death, twenty four seven. And she ends up building, like, staircases to nowhere, doors that open into big drops, and she had a seance room, and windows where there's no light, and she just kept building, building, and building. Um, But the house is beautiful, particularly the outside of the house. It's fantastic. It's not where you... you, It's not like the Hearst Castle, where it's very remote. It's like in downtown San Jose. Yeah, I had never heard of that house, and now, in the last couple of years, I've I've heard about it like three times or four times. Um, the, they were mentioning it on Nerdist podcast, and but the first time I heard about it was actually the story Jared Padalecki was telling at in like a convention or something. I don't know some video I saw where well, Pad- yeah Winchester <laughs> yeah he he and his wife and his kids were like oh you know this sounds like a cool place oh but should we really go oh what the hell we'll go. And even though it was could have been really awkward and um, they went and they had a good time. And he was saying that it was almost like there was a piece of him that was like, gee, nobody's, you know, recognizing us or anything. That's good. It's really nice. But at the same time, his ego was being a little bruised. And um, and then at the very end of the tour, the tour guide said, and by the way, We'd all really like to have a picture with you if we could. Oh, that's nice. So they had just been being really nice 
and letting them have their tour and their family time. And yeah, they knew exactly who they were. And I mean, I can't imagine that they, the Winchester house wouldn't know what Supernatural was, what was happening on Supernatural. They're big into Wincest. <laughs> well, yeah, that sounds like a cool place. I'd like to go there. Yeah, it's a fun tour and it only takes about an hour and 10 minutes or so. Though there's another tour where they take you like into the basement and you wear hard hats. Yeah. I didn't do that one. Didn't do that one. Huh. Didn't feel the need to see that. Because after that, we drove to Santa Barbara, spent the night there, and then back to Phoenix. So how um, long did you do? A lot of driving. Have you been to Left... the Getty Museum in L.A.? No, I don't think so. No. Oh, you should go to the... Next time you go through L.A., uh, Getty Museum is free, just but you have to call for reservations. And it is made in the form of a, um, a Roman villa from uh, Pompeii, I believe. And it overlooks the ocean, and, and it's just—it's a beautiful, beautiful museum. Just and just the architecture of it is just lovely, and it's free. I want to go and take a personality quiz at the Scientology Center. You've <laughs> <laughs> got too many Thetans, or not enough Thetans, or whatever it is. <laughs> I have too many Thetans. Not enough Thetans. My my Thetans are just not right. <laughs> your yeah, they have to be balanced. <laughs> my Thetans are all out of whack. Uh, yeah, oddly enough, I don't think I've ever been to Phoenix, Arizona. I've been to Northern Arizona, but I don't think I've ever been you're not missing anything. <laughs> Aw, I'm sure there's plenty of nice things. There's really not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so so- I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> 